Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 100th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that knows how to add a zero to the deal. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of magic gathering, finance collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on magic singles and sealed product with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via mtgprice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host tonight, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey, James, glad to be here, and uh, episode 100. It's a pretty whoop. big milestone. Whoop, whoop, whoop. We, we timed this wrong, though, because it's like our end of the year is like a week off of our episode 100, so it always feels like, wait, which one am I supposed to pay more attention to? Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of a cool combo uh, this time. It's December 30th. We're recording right at the end of the year and, uh, you know, get to give give everybody some good information about what happened in the in a very busy 2017 for MTG Finance. And huge thank yous to everybody that supported us along the way that listens to the cast every week. And uh, hope we've uh, we've put uh, a little bit of extra money in your pocketbook or helped you build your collection this year as you've bought, sold and trade your favorite magic cards. Yeah, uh, it was. Uh, I would like to think that everybody did well if they listened to us, but we'll talk about that on a little more individual basis in a minute. Uh, our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com, the manager collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. So as our end of year wrap up, we have a little bit of a different format this week. You want to break it down for everybody? Sure. Segment one this week is our top movers of the year. James and I are going to look back at some of the greatest hits of 2017, both on raw dollar increase and percentage increase and kind of run through that list a little bit, give you a feel for what what some of the stories of the year were in terms of that, in terms of big movers. Segment two is our best and worst. James and I will kind of look back at a lot of the cards that we talked about this year uh, and money that you may have made or on few instances lost based on uh, some of our specs and, you know, kind of what we thought about and, you know, what we hope to do next year. Um, Segment three, we'll give you guys a couple more picks to round off the year. And segment four, topic of the week of the year. Uh, We're going to talk about a couple, uh, a couple major threads, narratives that ran through 2017, um, kind of how they shaped magic finance and, and what we might be seeing in the year to come. Uh, so let's start out. Uh, top movers of the year. Um, we've kind of got these in somewhat of an order, but not terribly. I'm just going to kind of start uh, a more recent one that we heard about. Uh, Bizarre Baghdad started the year at 750 and is now upwards of $2,000. Um, and we're going to see this as sort of the tip of the iceberg for reserveless cards across the board, just spiking all over the place. I mean, I'm not sure Bizarre is going to hold 2,000. That's kind of like where it's sitting on TCG player. Um, the copies, there are graded 8s and 9s on eBay closer to 1,000 to 1,200. Um, not tr- a tremendously deep amount of them. And I think, you know, people are going to get it in their head to start snapping these up if they don't have them already um, as kind of iconic tier 2 cards that are 
as a whole, as a class of cards, going, have seen tremendous appreciation this year and are likely to be able to hold significantly higher plateaus than they did a year or even two years ago. Um, you know, I got a bizarre, oddly enough, on Puka Trade um, about almost two years ago now when things actually functioned on that site. And it was through the process of trading out a bunch of specs that were acquired for about $400 into the bazaar at $650, if you can believe that. So we've come a long way from even just a couple of years back. It was a nice little pickup. You posted that screenshot recently, and I was like, did he seriously just get this on Puka Trade? And it was, it was like a month ago. <laughs> I know it was actually. Years, I, I don't so. think. I'm assuming on Puka Trade, if you wanted to get that, you'd be providing something like 300 to 500 percent difference in points yeah yeah, i imagine as much um yeah another card that we've seen with a pretty healthy currency raw value increase is jazamdijin which apparently abu just upped their buy list to 800 on this guy uh and this is a card that was selling for retail at like 600 maybe at the start of the year Maybe even less than that, 500. So, uh, Jazam Dijin really, uh, being a sort of a banner iconic 9394 part of Magic branding, the Magic storyline type of thing, really, uh, really made a big move this year. Jusim's interesting because it's a card that's utterly underpowered in, in the existing framework of Magic. I mean, a, a four cost and cost five eye with Dan's side is, is not where it's at. Um, and it's not even really played in anything but old school, and old school is a relatively small format. So, you know, the this is purely on the basis of nostalgia. This is people remembering that this was one of the big bads in the first few years of the game, and guys that are now in their 30s and 40s that have disposable income are snapping these up to, you know, throw into the the collection and just, you know, show off occasionally and fondle <laughs> as they watch Netflix. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, you've also got the fact that Jazamdijin was the um, was kind of the face of magic for a while. A lot of that old uh, marketing materials had it everywhere. You know, the giant Dijin holding the the uh, Arabian Nights character, Aladdin, or whoever it was supposed to be. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, but you're you're completely right. It, it's it's people who who want to remember the game fondly and have too much money. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I and Jazam's just. I would argue have settled at their, you know, at their upper price point, their new plateau, um, a little more certainly than say Bazaar has. Bazaar is still kind of in the process of settling its new price, but you know, you can't find a near mint Jism on eBay for anything under fifteen hundred dollars. Jeez, man. Okay, I gotta keep my eyes out for those. Be the kind of thing that in a somebody's collection getting dragged up from a basement. Uh, would certainly snap my head around at attention. Oh yeah, yeah. That's because where where there's a Dijin, there's probably something else in there too, right? It's not just that. Yeah. Uh, okay. What uh, what else did we see this year? Well, also on the that list of you know major movers on the reserve list, we had the Gaia's Cradle uh, Judge foils moving from like five or six hundred dollars upwards of a thousand dollars. Um, this is the very lovely, shiny, uh, only ever foil version of Gaia's Cradle. And we were picking these up in Europe in the, in the spring in the, you know, four or five, like I think three fifty dollars to $400 range, if I'm not mistaken. And I managed to flip through maybe two or three of them in a pretty short period of time. I had one guy in Hawaii pick up uh, three over the course of a week from me. 
and I had a couple already in the collection. Those I sold maybe two months later, um, peaking somewhere around. I think the last one copy I sold was at seven eighty eight eighty eight, and I felt really good about that sale. And now I'm looking back on it like, geez, should have just held. <laughs> yeah, uh, that is roughly where we were getting them. I think uh, it was like three to four hundred. Um, I mean, I don't regret any of the copies we sold because it was a good, it was you know a solid profit at the time. Uh, but yeah, I actually even picked this out uh, a couple of weeks ago when it was you know at nine hundred dollars after uh, Doug Johnson um, reported that he sold one for nine hundred and fifty on TCG Player, and it's like. All right. If people are paying a grand, uh, you know, I, I think there's still room for this to grow too, um, given the sheer power of the card and its position in EDH. Yeah, I mean, we're going to see the non-foil show up on my list of, of picks for the year a little later. So we'll talk about it a, a bit more in a few minutes. Okay. Uh, next is uh, we saw Carnival of Souls. Um, was a foil from Urza's Destiny jumped from 200 or 20 to like 200. It originally was like 280. It's still quite high though. I think it's over $100 right now. So a really big jump, both percentage-wise and raw value. Uh, just one of those reserveless foils that kind of got caught up in that sweep of people going after anything that seemed remotely playable. Yeah, I mean, we also saw Grim Monolith foils um, go sky high. Um, I think your compatriot over on Cartel uh, infamously said that he had stockpiled a bunch of these. Uh, yeah, that's possible. I don't remember. I don't remember at this point, but maybe. I mean, the only only copies I can find on TCG Player near Mint foil are sitting, are you know, two copies at nine hundred dollars a piece. So anybody that was on these, you know, a few years back. Um, you know, even even nine to twelve months ago, is in a pretty sweet position. I mean, they seemed they seemed hard to move at two to three hundred, um, but here we are in a world where if you want to get your hands on one of these um, foils from kind of the the first year of the foiling process in Magic as a game, um, the Urza's Destiny and Legacy sets, it's just there's just not much left on the market. It's getting absorbed by vendors for you know, mid to long-term flips. It's getting absorbed by collectors never to return. Some of that stuff ends up in EDH decks and has has trouble circulating back into the market. Um, you know, all of the, the pressure factors say, you know, sky's the limit. Yeah, there's, uh, it's wild, wild what, what happened over there. Uh, and, you know, I don't think they're on our list, but we also saw like Palancron and, um, uh, shoot, what are the other ones? Academy Rector, Replenish, all those moved pretty good too. I mean, all those foils from Urza's block that were remotely playable really saw a good jump. I picked up a foil Japanese Yagmas bargain on Tokyo MTG maybe four months ago for about $60 and sold it last night on eBay for $280 plus. That's pretty, pretty pleasant. Yeah. So, I mean, the any anybody who has the stuff underpriced in a case <laughs> or sitting around in a trade binder, you know, be fair, but trade trade something that with a significantly, uh, you know, if you can get standard or modern staples out for reserve list foils from Legacy and Destiny, that's a fine move. Oh, yeah. I would be happy to take that all day long. It's just so much safer and more comfortable to be there. Yeah. Um, okay. What do you got next for us? 
I saw you had the Mox Opal Masterpiece series here. Um, I'll probably table that discussion since a whole bunch of that shows up in our personal picks of the year. Um, suffice to say, Masterpiece series uh, in the first four to five months of the year, I guess probably the first half of the year, um, was one of the biggest stories in MGG Finance. And we'll get into that deeper in, in a bit. Okay. Um, drop a Honey from Arabian Nights, moving from like $100 to like $400. Massive gains on that card this year. Yeah, that was that price stuck pretty good too. That was after it showed up as a sideboard card in like Legacy Lands. Uh, there is the market price on this is four fifty five on TCG, so it actually sold copies too. That was a real move, uh, which surprised a lot of us. I know I did not expect in any way, shape, or form for that to really move like that. Uh, but hey, here we go. I, I, I didn't, I, I didn't think it could hold it, um, and I was really excited because when my cousin dropped off that collection in the fall. Um, one of the first cards I picked out looked like a drop of honey, except it had, it was like shiny in a weird way, not like foils. <laughs> and I immediately picked it out in about six other cards as being fakes that had been traded into his collection at one point. It was very disappointing. Oh, that's a bummer. I was going to say, was it one of those cards that looks a lot, looks almost the same, but is not as a different card? Uh, famously, there's Monoprism, looks exactly like Lion's Eye Diamond, and it's from the same set. And every time you're going through a collection, you see that you get really excited and then you just get completely blown out. Yeah. <laughs> um, sleight of Hand, foil copies of Sleight of Hand 7th Edition were bouncing all over the place this year. They drained and then they restocked and they drained and then they restocked. So saw some movement on that one. Some of these, uh, you know, multi-format. Well, I guess Sleight of Hand probably mostly modern, but some of these ancient foils from 7th Edition I, we kept coming back to this year. Yeah, and this was before Opt was reprinted, and uh, but Gataxian Probe was banned, right? Uh, I, yeah, I don't know what the timeline on this with Gataxian Probe was. Yeah, I, th- I think that Slight started to see some real movement when people, the Blue Mages, had to start reconsidering, you know, what their deck manipulation options were. Um, the aforementioned Yagmos Bargain that I just sold uh, a nice Japanese copy of moved the foils moved from about twenty to hundred, so you know that's that's where that why that went down the way it did. Um, and this is again just as an Urza's Destiny foil rare, a busted, super busted card banned in most of the formats it, it would be played in, um, because it's basically a necropotence that doesn't take away your draw phase. Yeah, boy, I remember that getting the day that got unbanned in vintage or unrestricted. That was uh, that was pretty funny. It's like quick, everyone run out and buy seven hundred dollar cards. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we also had 7th edition Coat of Arms foils. I mean, 7th foils are always under assault. It's kind of a persistent process that uh, grinds and grinds over, over the months and years. Uh, in theory, a Coat of Arms foil is worth four or $500 these days. I don't know if you could ever unload one at that price, um, except to the, the rare 7th edition foil collector. But um, suffice to say, 7th edition foils um, are harder and harder to come by. Yeah, and they were not available before. I mean, it's not like those were plentiful in the past. I mean, even at this point, a lot of the commons are difficult to find for less than, you know, 10 bucks. I think what people don't maybe fully understand that weren't around or playing at that point or or just maybe didn't take note of it at the time was that 7th and 8th edition are not only were those foils black bordered in a white bordered set. Um, but they were also, you know, published at a time where print runs were likely quite a bit lower than um, before and after. There was a lull in Magic's popularity where they weren't quite sure of their direction, <laughs> although <laughs> you could argue we still aren't. Um, yeah. But, you know, that being 
nevertheless, the part of the reason you can't you have trouble finding those is that a they were in in sets that were targeted not at hyper competitive players. Um, and so a lot of that stuff, the attrition rate would have been even higher than in stuff that was that was required for, um, you know, as uh, the summer sets have transitioned into being a big part of standard and away from being introductory products, um, you know, the attrition rates have probably gotten better. Um, but that culmination of factors um, contributes to this, you know, the, the reasons why you should always be aware of where your seventh foils are in your collection. Yep. Yeah, they're uh, never going to have a bad day if you stumble upon one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my personal favorites that we saw jump uh, was Nakata War Pride. I've always, I've always been amused by this card. It's such a a unique card. I think part of it was in, in our friend group. I was the first one to actually figure out what it did. And I took a little bit of pride in that at the time. Um, Nakata War Pride is this really funky card that when it, it's like a five on a three, three, and when it attacks, you put a copy of it in the play for every single one of your opponent's creatures that could block. Um, it jumped because we found out that cats were one of the tribal decks that were coming out. Uh, and people were kind of excited about that. And, and so it made a ton of cats really quickly in EDH, which is pretty cool. Uh, but the foils on that jumped. Well, the non-foils jumped from like 75 cents to four bucks. I think the foils were like two to 10 or something like that too. So a pretty good move. And um, you know, those, those tribal EDH decks really pushed a, a variety of cards from every tribe um, no clerics, unfortunately, because there's stupid wizards and not clerics. But that was a that was a big part of kind of like what was that September October where we saw all sorts of tribal stuff moving. Yeah, I mean, we debated like even leaving these kind of cards on the list because Decree of Silence is the next one that was you know pumped by Solemnity uh, appearing as a as a card. Um, but the stuff that goes from a dollar to three to four dollars is is especially if it's EDH focused where you're only going to sell a single copy at a time, really not where you want to be. It's hard to make money. Um, so I think we can move right along. Um, we saw blood braid elf from, uh, the Alara block, uh, the foils moving from $8 to 50. This is people anticipating blood braid elf being unbanned at some point in 2018 in modern. Um, that's a pretty risky play. Wouldn't you think? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's really funny how many times people keep coming back to blood braid elf specifically with regards to that too. Right. It's like, there's no other card that people target as often on the, res- uh, the ban list in modern as they do blood braid elf. And at this point, the prices are so high, there's no way you're going to make any money, even if it does get unbanned. Like every copy is in the hands of spectators and they're, you know, you're paying like 10 or 15 bucks to buy them. Like people are not going to be spending $70 on foil blood braid elves if this is legal and modern. And that's what you're going to need it to be. Well, and the other thing is that the timing is such that if they were planning on banning unbanning some stuff or adjusting the ban list after the modern pro tour, which is what they've said they're going to do. There's not going to be any changes in advance of that stop. So the timing is, is really sketchy for speculation because it aligns with magic 25, the, the unbanning potential unbanning aligns with the release of magic 25. And if they know what's coming, if they've already made those kind of decisions or they've got this on their short list of, of potentials, Bloodbraid Elf could end up being in M25, at which point foils will be a foil uncommon in a popular set and will crash to the floor. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, it, it, and it was already an EMA, so it's like supply is already a lot higher than you want it to be as it is. Just the whole thing is is an, is an odd choice. Uh, and while I do think Bloodbraid Elf is really likely to get unbanned, it's one of the more likely cards to get unbanned, it's just not the right... Um, it, it, there's no money left to be made on this guy. 
It's a classic case of uh, in in the equities world, they like to use the turn of phrase that you you buy the rumor and, and sell the news. And I think that is definitely the case here with blood products. <laughs> All right. What else we got? So Untai Dadaki, the cloud keeper out of Champions of Kamigawa, uh, uh, foils going from $4.25 on the basis of Planeswalkers suddenly becoming legendary permanents uh, in the mid-late summer. Um, this also went for one of the uh, the other big ones on this list, Honor Worn Shaku, moving from their foils, moving from a dollar to twenty seven, <laughs> a twenty six dollar gain in theory, and the biggest mover of the year uh, with a twenty six hundred percent gain. Um, and surprisingly, I actually managed to sell some of those foils. I didn't sell them at twenty seven, um, but I have sold Honor Worn Shakus in the ten to fifteen dollar foils in the ten to fifteen dollar range. That's uh, really wild. I, especially for me, I have a friend who built a uh, a deck that we affectionately refer to as three and a half horsemen in modern. It's supposed to be four horsemen from Legacy ported over, and it does this ridiculous chain with like Leyline of Singularity, I think, and Honorworn Shaku and Mesmeric Orb. I mean, it is a real thing of beauty to see this the way this deck works and honor worn shaku was always like the joke card it made the engine run but it was the most ridiculous card to see in the list uh and then when this suddenly the foils on this spiked i just was like shocked it was just so funny uh i mean it's it's the classic case of people going oh here's this thing okay so what does that make valuable and then they go search on gatherer for everything that mentions the word legendary and then they cross-check that against available inventory on TCG Player, and away you go. <laughs> um, Quest for Renewal was a good one this year. Uh, Quest for Renewal, that was... Boy, what, what triggered that? I mean, I'm looking at my note here, and I don't see... I don't see us writing down why it moved. I don't, I don't know if there was a catalyst for this one, other than just... We wrote down that it was low supply... And I mean, it, it actually is like three bucks, three to four bucks market price. So I went from 75 cents to four dollars. Definitely an EDH card for sure. Um, but I don't remember what it was that would have triggered that. Probably just a little. So it was a world wake foil. So um, I do see here we've got Dusk Urchins, uh, which was Hapatra. There was also uh, Harbinger of the Night was Hapatra. We had a couple cards from Hapatra this year, and this isn't even all of them. That was another big price mover. That ended up being one of the best commanders this year for finance picks, which kind of caught me by surprise. Uh, and this is, you know, we have Harbinger Knight and Hapat and um, was it Dusk Urchins written down? There was also uh, there was like Malir's Vanguard or something. There were there were like five, six, seven cards that spiked because of that commander. That showed, but really the takeaway was that minus one, minus one counter manipulation is and, and counter manipulation in general is still really popular. Um, and uh, combine that with a very limited print run from the Shadowmoor Eventide era can really do some some work on prices. So you know the next time we see one of these generals come through. Uh, that kind of uses those effects and puts uh, a, a strain on supply that's already limited like those types of sets, you're going to see prices go bonkers again. I think we had talked about if we ever see a Jund commander show up uh, who adds red to the mix, that will allow you to go back to those sets and get all the red ones like Ashen War Liege and those types of cards that uh, don't fit in Hapatra. Or if they change the EDH rules and let you know the black and red hybrid cards like that into a, a deck like Hapatra would also do a lot to move prices there. 
Yeah, so I picked up my Russian boxes of recent sets uh, from my source down in Ohio uh, while I was home for the holidays and managed to crack a pack that had Russian Scorpion God, Russian Foil Scorpion God. So that was a nice moment. <laughs> um, and it reminded me that the minus one, minus one counter cards were a thing this year. Um, and then the, uh, the whole that whole scene is worth keeping an eye on. Um, also, uh, some big movers this year included Biorhythm Foils from 9th Edition, uh, Mind Moil uh, Foils from uh, Ravnica made a move based on Locust God, and we're, we're up like 700% from like $0.60 cents to $6 or something. Um, Wanderwine Profits from Lorewin moved from $1 to $10 uh, because they helped provide infinite turns in the Wizards deck. So a lot of this was like late summer um, commander tribal action. Yeah. And you know, we talked about that early briefly with like the Nakata War Pride too. That was all over the board. Every tribe got their movements. Uh, I mean, even Imperiosaur had a jump from like fifty cents to ten dollars at one point, and it hasn't really stuck quite as much uh, anywhere near that price point uh, because they changed it to be a dinosaur to fit in um, with the tribal decks that came out in Ixalan, the tribal theme. So, uh, tribal definitely still a thing uh, for a lot of EDH players, even if you personally sort of moved beyond that in your deck building. Yeah, I mean, Rashad and Footpad foils moving from 50 cents to like $9 for a 1,600% gain. And it was actually Footpad, Cut Purse, and Brigand. All of those have showed up on on Movers and Shakers lists for several months now. And I've actually managed to sell foils of all of the above. So um, at one point, there was that Pirate Legacy um, deck joke where people were... Um, reporting that there was a deck that was taking over Legacy, and it turned out it was just a big hoax. Um, but nevertheless, these these pirates have sold for months on end. So, you know, the, the demand is there. My theory goes that they people realize that they're pretty solid in the EDH, where when you flicker them in and out of play, it makes your opponents sacrifice permanence um, uh, all the time if they if they don't have the mana to pay. The fact that these continue to sell despite uh, having been outed as a complete joke and not a real deck is sort of amazing to me. Like, it's like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, that is just such an odd series of events <laughs> that people would continue to buy these cards even after the only thing that the only reason that you had to buy them in the first place was proven to be a joke. But I think you're right that people realize that they're good in other formats. It's just sort of amazing that people still continue to buy them. Uh, it's either, I mean, you could also make the argument that given the overall level of play on EDH Rex, so like even Brigand, which is the three, two flyer for five that forces opponents to sack a permanent unless they pay three. I mean, that's the harshest of the taxing cards um, only shows up in 500 decks. So you could also make the argument that somebody else decided that this was a spec and has been defending that spec for months on end like a fool. <laughs> but seeing as how they've helped the rest of us sell a copy or two here and there, um, no one's complaining. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, Sure, whatever, take your money where you can get it, even if you don't understand it. I mean, th there's nothing better than riding the wave of emptied supply on a card that has minimal demand and being the, the, the guy in the mix of all the people holding that manages to actually sell. I mean, that's just like yeah. a stroke of luck. Um, <laughs> you don't get to pat yourself on the back because you're not doing anything smart, but being, you know, luck skill victory, right? Luck is still part yeah, of right. the, luck is always part of the equation. Better lucky than good is uh, my life's motto. Sure. Uh, what else caught your eye this year? 
So we saw Boone Weaver Giants make a big move. Again, probably uh, the foils in particular from uh, M15. Uh, it was basically an ignored card, and the foils went from $0.50 cents to seven fifty. That's like a 1,400% gain. Again, on the back of Solemnity. Um, Cabal Pitts, uh, Odyssey Foils, making a move from about a dollar to 12 for about something like a 1,200 to 1,500% gain, probably on the basis of four-color loam uh, discussions in Legacy at some point. And, you know, that's that's kind of the list. I mean, there's there's dozens and dozens of cards that were 100% plus that didn't make this list. And we could really spend probably a month's worth of episodes going through them all and, and, and reviewing. But, you know, all of the entire archive is, of course, online. If you guys want to go back and, and take a deeper uh, dig, you can uh, take a look at all of the uh, show note articles that have been posted on mtgprice.com. They are uh, almost entirely up to date at this point. Um, so if you want to browse through the year of 2017 on MTG Fast Finance and get a deeper sense of the movies or shakers, feel free to do so. Um, I can summarize it for you, though, and I think you would agree, Travis, that um, you know if, if we're looking at a single theme on this list, it is the combination of two things, reserve lists and EDH finance. Oh, yeah. I mean, those were – and we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more in a minute, but those are definitely the – uh, the two major takeaways from 2017, I think, in terms of you know what was pushing prices. All right, so moving right along, we're going to get it dive into our best and worst recommendations of 2017. This is the fun little segment where you we get to remind you of where we made you money and where we messed up. <laughs> um, uh, as we are humans with egos and limited time, we will spend a little bit more time talking about our successes than our failures. <laughs> But we'll still try to to underscore some of our, our larger errors so that maybe we can all learn from them moving forward. Well, you know, okay, so I feel I was pretty happy looking back on the list this year because I had several picks that sort of didn't move, but I had very few that like just flat out went down. And even the ones that did go down were ones that I said, these are like they're temporary. I don't know if they're actually gonna pull it off. It depends on the metagame, blah, blah, blah. So I couched them in enough qualifiers that I don't feel too bad about the, about the outcome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had, you know, a very similar experience looking through our data for the year. Um, you know, we track all of the stuff on a week by week basis and we have it in the big spreadsheet and, you know, there's tons, tons of picks that have been relatively flat or have spiked and then retreated or have dropped and then regained. Um, and, and it's important to keep in mind that not every pick is considered to be equal. Um, we don't expect you to go equally deep on every pick. That's why we give, um, you know, confidence ratings usually in the 7 to 10 range um, out of 10. Uh, and also, you know, try to put some emphasis on things that are particularly import, important. Um, there's also, you know, some picks are more about, you know, getting in on something at its floor to make sure you have it for decks moving forward. Um whereas some other picks are purely speculative in nature um, based on trend lines that suggest they're going to make you a bunch of money. Um, so I mean, all in all, it, it looked like a pretty good year. <clears throat> and and where we were weak, I think the theme is going, at least with the picks of mine that didn't play out, was you know, occasionally trying to throw standard picks into the mix that in a year where that was uh, very rare to pay off. Yeah, and I, I think that I probably had the most misses there too as I was looking at the standard results and saying, well, hey, if this deck ends up becoming popular, you could see this card take off. And if this one gets good, it'll move. Uh, and basically nothing we did mattered um, or, or nothing that the players did mattered. It was just like if you weren't energy, there was basically very little room to find any growth here. 
Uh, at least in the at least in the last half of the year, that's totally true. Yeah, and so and you know mm-hmm. beyond just energy sort of crushing standard in general, uh, standard finance has been really brutal lately. Um, you know, I saw Saffron made a comment the other day how like the most expensive deck in standard is like three hundred dollars, and it's like uh, I remember playing during when Mythic was a deck back in uh, Bant Mythic in the like a large Zendikar block, and it was like literally a thousand dollars to put the deck together. So prices in standard have just cratered, uh, for better or for worse. And even even as recently as Khan's block, right? Like Jeskai Black was a thousand to fifteen hundred dollar deck. Yeah, yeah, and, and and part of that was the, the fetch lands. You know, those were sort of a, I would say a bit of an outlier. You're not going to see that type of thing very often. But yeah, I mean, even still, there was a lot more money in there then than there is now. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in, in in many, I think we would both agree that you know a cheaper standard is potentially a good thing. Um, that making sure that the barriers to entry are as low as possible. My concern um, with the arguments that both standard and modern should be uh, available at minimal cost has been that I don't actually believe the breakpoints in the demand graph are as abrupt as people think they are. And I think that when you move from a $1,000 deck to a $700 deck to a $500 deck, you don't actually change the total number of players playing in the same way that if you went from 1000 to 100 you would see a quite a quite a big difference. And if you went from 1000 to $10, you might see a tremendous difference. Yeah, it, it feels like it's more about optics almost than about the number of players that are actually in the game. But I also think there's a lot of structural friction in the ecosystem of of the LGS and players' relationship with the, with their LGS. Um, you know, it's underestimated frequently, like how much time is required to be a committed Magic player um, to stay on top of how quickly Standard can evolve um, or even Modern, and the need to have a big enough collection to be able to shift around and. Um, how much time you need just to pay attention to those formats to feel confident about showing up and bothering to play. And I think that the information processing load for the game doesn't change much regardless of whether you've got $1,000 decks or $10 decks. The consequences for spending money on a deck that might be obsolete are reduced, but you still you still have all of this other friction in the system that prevents people from fully committing almost no matter what price you price mm-hmm. it at. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's a formula that we're lacking a lot of the inputs for wizards holds those sort of in their hand. Um, it has been, I, it has been amusing, uh, for me at least to see the shift in opinion from some of the community, uh, a lot of individuals on my Twitter timeline who two years ago were yelling constantly about how there weren't enough reprints and standard was too expensive and nobody can play and blah, blah, blah. Uh, are now suddenly saying there's too many reprints, stop printing them, it's too cheap, they're, you know, gutting the cl- the values and players don't like the cards as cheap. And it's it's amusing how that's swung around. Well, and there's also this, the whole issue um, that anybody who's playing standard is well aware of that, um, as you said, team or energy uh, and various versions of energy have dominated the standard landscape for six months. Before that, they had a bunch of problems with bannings. Multiple cards had to be banned in the year prior. So standard is really on shaky legs. 
Um, you know, I don't believe that there are seeing they're seeing a significant influx of players into standard. Um, I think it recovered a bit as Ixalan was released, and then as it became clear that Energy was setting up shop uh, alongside the Red Decks as kind of the dominant uh, duopoly strategy in the format. Um, you know interest has waned. You've got pros advertising on Twitter asking for subjects to discuss in their upcoming article on their weekly articles because they know that no one wants to read standard articles anymore until the next couple sets come up. And so this is happening at a time where the I think that the overall shift in focus in magic from standard as the primary core central format for players is now out of sync with with Wizards' desire to keep people focused on standard because it drives the most sales of each set as mm-hmm. it comes out. And, and because of that, you know, if more and more players are happy to just fool around in Modern um, or play EDH or experiment with Frontier or Popper or whatever, you know, smaller format, old school or whatever that they're, they're happy to mess around with, um, you know, that that creates problems <laughs> for wizards <laughs> because this game is predicated on the core format, the one that most people play um, at least that have made it at least to an LGS and know where their local LGS is located and will show up occasionally. F and M is kind of built around standard being the main thing, even if, you know, for a few years now um, LGSs have been uh, permissioned to run other formats that night. Um, and so if the game becomes, uh, if the focus of players becomes more diverse across multiple formats, it becomes tougher and tougher to push the new sets. Yeah, uh, it's the, the moving away from standard losing its position here, whether it by intention or by design, is not does not look good for wizards. Uh, so hopefully, you know, hopefully they can kind of pull that back around and, and, and push people back into that format to maintain that that appeal. Uh, to get players into the store type of thing. But uh, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Anyways, let's get back to our best and worst here. That was where all of this started. Um, how should we do? How do you want to do this? Should we start at our best, our, our least good gainer? Should we talk about what we screwed up first? What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Let, let, let's be upfront about our mistakes. Okay, okay. So I think my worst pick, I guess, I'm going to say a quote unquote worst pick this year was Mirror of the Forebears. Mirror of the Forebear, which was uh, it's a commander card. It's an artifact uh, that, wait, let me find it here for you. I'll give you a better idea. No, it's not Mirror of the Forbearers. It's not Forbearers. Um, <laughs> the, the, the best specs are the ones that nobody can even remember what they yeah, are. Yeah, uh, no, still, by the way, nobody <laughs> still knows what, uh, oh, crap, what's it called? Um, the green one, the really bad collected company. Uh You know, you know which one I'm talking about. Like, reveal 20 cards and you pick two creatures type of thing. What is that card called? You know which one I'm talking about? Uh, nope. Summoning Pack. No, it's the one that you spec'd on. The really weird one. Oh, from, from Cons? Yes. No. From, shoot, that green spell. El- Elders Increase, Evolution? Not Increasing Confusion. No, no, no. It was four mana, like reveal the top 20 cards. You choose two creatures. Your opponent takes one of those creatures, and then you take the other one. Oh, 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 dubious, dubious challenge. challenge. Yeah, my point was going to be that nobody still knows what that card actually does. Nobody understands it yet. It's been <laughs> six months, nobody knows what it does. Mirror of the Forebears is an artifact from Commander 2017 that becomes a copy of a, of another creature you control. Um, 
And I thought that it was interesting looking at $1.50. I'm like, we're seeing a lot of tribal decks all of a sudden. It's a cool card if it's in other tribal strategies. Uh, it has dropped from $1.50. I see copies at like $0.25 cents right now. Um, so it definitely jumped off a cliff. Uh, part of that due to the, a, a large re-release on Commander 2017, I think, put a lot more copies into the market than we kind of expected to see. So I don't feel so terrible about that, but definitely one of the one of the worst ones this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know, I, I, I'll match you with, with one uh, that I think might be uh, even worse. I, I got kind of the entire expertise cycle wrong. Um, I made predictions on at least three or four of the expertise foils as being something that was going to potentially see modern play and would be a gainer. Um, for instance, I, I pointed out that Carrie Zev's expertise foils in, at $5 in episode 59 last spring um, were, were a hot commodity that might hit 15 and instead they're down to $2 for a minus 60% gain. <laughs> uh, so... Apologies if I directed you at expertise cards that haven't gotten anywhere yet. Um, although I, I, they do have my interest because they still cast cards for free. And that's the kind of open-ended synergy that eventually hits. Yeah, and I think that's something we kind of come across on a lot of these. Is like Even if they didn't have not panned out well this year, we can still look at them and be like, part of the reason we liked them in the first place is it felt like there was room for them down the road. So even if you miss you get to kind of stash it away and hope that it does something for you down the road. And it's kind of unfortunate that the red one is a threaten effect instead of say just a, a damage effect, because if that had been like a arc lightning with, or like a, like a three mana does three damage spell to target creature or player plus the free cast, it might have a brighter future. Um, threaten effects have a, you know, are only useful against very specific decks, you know, the ones that play creatures and, and that certainly makes things a little harder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I recommended Torrental Gearhulk a while ago at 15 on the chance that it could hit 30. Uh, it was right before a pro tour, I think. And I might've talked about it more than once. Um, instead those blue control decks went absolutely nowhere and it turned around and now the card's like 12 bucks. So you, if you had spent 15, you're at 12 now. So there's a loss there. But again, I don't feel terrible because it was like, and I don't think anyone really realized that Torrential Gearhulk was going to be, or that the energy was going to completely steamroll standard so badly. And in so many versions of standard, Torrential Gearhulk would have been a four of powerhouse the entire time it was available. Yes. Yeah. And I think I feel like I said, it depends on how the format shakes out. But that's that's the major thing with standard is there every standard that comes around, there are several cards you can point to and say in another format and another standard, this card is ridiculous and is a tier one card. And in this standard, it goes nowhere because the, the pieces aren't there or there's a the hate card is too good or what have you. Uh, so I always try and classify standard picks with that knowledge. Like just be aware that we don't actually know yet. And I really want the bottom to fall out on this card at rotation to like the 4 or $5 range so I can pick some up. Because as a long-term hold, they seem fine. Not super exciting, but I wouldn't mind having 10 or 20 copies lying around at that price. Yeah, for sure. That's... Um... It does seem like you could get some use out of that in the future. I mean, even in EDH, it's pretty solid there. There's 3,000 decks using it already in EDH. 3,000, yeah. So it's going to look that's not the worst. So I feel like we're not doing terrible on these picks here. (laughs) There's always, we have an escape clause for all of them. 
Here's another I'm not as smart about modern as I think I am card. Um, Harsh mentor foils. I looked at this card and I was like, oh yeah, this is the, this is that underwhelming card that goes under the radar. Like people don't realize how many triggered abilities there are in the format that are, that are going to trip people up and cost them too much money. This is the next Eidolon of the great Ravel. And I looked back at how much money I had made on Eidolon foils. And I was like, yeah, yeah, this, this, this is going to be just like that. <laughs> and instead uh, I called it at $12 to go to 20 and now it's four bucks. So I cost you guys 70% or so on those foils. If you bothered to listen to me, um, that's uh it's a bummer. <laughs> yeah. And, and the card has basically done nothing nowhere. Yeah. Well, there's always a chance. Modern is really wide open. Maybe, uh, maybe it'll come. It'll get its chance in the future. Uh, other than that, I didn't really have too many other losses. I had several cards that plateaued, but I didn't really feel like it was important to talk about those. Just, oh, well, we missed on some on a standard card and a re-release of some commander product really kind of tanked one of mine. Um, did you have any other losses this year that you wanted to touch on? I just wanted to finish up on Harsh Mentor. It is in 1,450 EDH decks. And you would think that whenever an opponent activates an ability of an artifact creature or land, it does two to them. Would be the kind of annoying thing that they can't really afford to waste a kill spell on, but that you know might actually be worth having on board. Mm-hmm. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely... It's, it's Dahlia-esque as a place in the format... Um, and it, yeah, I don't, it seems similar enough to Eidolon that you might be able to get away with it, but I, I don't know. I mean, part of it might be the burn is just like non-existent in modern at this point, right? Like it's, oh no, no, I'm, I'm talking about EDH now. Like, I mean, Eidolon's role in, in modern is secured because it says three class and costs are less in the format so fast. Harsh mentor says any opponent activating an ability of an artifact creature or land costs them two life, right? Oh yeah, that would so, be super annoying in EDH and you're right. It would be hard to to take the damage or to get rid of it, um, people would probably end up eating a lot of damage. Uh, my expectation is that it's a question of it's not as exciting. Like in EDH, you're usually not struggling to fill your 99. You're struggling to not overload your deck. And well, Harsh Mentor might be effective. It's just not that exciting or fun of a card to play. Uh, so that might be part of the issue there. And, and none of that changes the fact that the foil inventory is so deep that even if that thesis was true for EDH, it might be three or four years before you get to the turning point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right. So the other, the other one that I wanted to point out that I messed up on was also a gear Hulk. There was a certain point where cataclysmic gear Hulks were showing up in a bunch of, uh, God Pharaoh's gift decks and it was at $2. And I was like, this might hit eight. And instead it's at 50 cents. (laughs) It was a, a mythic gear Hulk that was actually played that's sitting at 50 cents. And I would have cost you 75% of your, your money there too. It's rude. It's real rude. <laughs> um, I also, I also called out street wraith foils on the basis that they hadn't been re hadn't been printed since, uh, modern masters, uh, or modern masters 2015. I want to say 2015. Uh, street wraith was the first, no second printing. That was second. So yeah, 2015. Yeah, 2015. Um, on the basis that Death Shadows decks were doing super, super well, and it looked like those foils would get gobbled up, um, I called them at 13 to get to 25, and instead they're sitting at $7 right now, down 46% since the call on episode 74. Yeah, that, I mean, Death Shadow was really 
really good modern for uh, a period. And it looked like it was going to become sort of the, the dominant deck of the format. And it was for a little while, but uh, modern ended up really opening up. I guess people figured out how to beat it. Um, and that that kind of recessed in popularity. And it's still there. It's just not the like 30% of the metagame it was for a couple of weeks. Yeah, there was also a period of time where people were talking that that deck was so good that that card was going to get banned. And I think that put the damper on speculation. Yeah, that's possible. Uh, you know, it's hard to get a feel for how much that can can impact things, but it's certainly plausible that that could have an impact on that type of action. It might scare people off a little bit. All right, let's dive in on where we did well here for everybody. Sure. Um, like, I, you know, uh, I had several sort of in, in one vicinity of uh, the masterpieces. You know, I had like Lightning Greaves and Scalding Steel and Austere Command. Um, you know, we, we were all year long, we were picking masterpiece cards, sort of inventions, uh, and a little bit of the invocations as, as growers. And they were jumping all year long, so it wasn't really that hard to to pick them uh and a lot of them have pulled way back since but all of them did spend some period of time kind of up over the threshold where you would have profited um lightning greaves was like 45 to 75 sculpting steel was 30 to 60 austere command was up towards 60 dollars for a month or so um and i know you know you've probably talked about i could no, actually just glancing down at your list i see like eight or nine <laughs> already so uh, these were definitely a, a big one for us this year um and I, you know, I'm not really going to pat ourselves on the back because it's not like it wasn't obvious. I don't know. I, I think we deserve a little more credit than that. I think we were ahead of the curve on this. If you go back and, and look at what people were talking about um, and when they got on board with this process, there's a reason that the gap was so open for us to drive through and that we were able to pick up deep inventory on these cards for, I would argue, four to six months. I mean, it certainly got worse to the to the end of that six months as people started to come around. But we took a lot of flack on social media early on when we were talking about these, where people were like, oh, look at what happened with the expeditions. It's not, you know, these aren't going to go anywhere. And, and I said, no, 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 no. Like, l- the first time we really talked about it was almost exactly a year ago today. It was something like the 26th of, of December of 2016. And I pointed out, listen, I've been doing some research over on Magic Card Market in Europe, look, trying to, look, you know, looking at opportunities to where things seem underpriced because the euro to the dollar ratio was significantly better a year ago. And it, it looked like that was going to be an exciting play, especially on EDH cards, because Europe was pretty obviously behind uh, behind, behind the demand curve um, that was present in North America for those kind of cards. And in the process of doing that research, tripped over some of the masterpieces that were most prominent in EDH. And it became clear that, you know, two things were true. Not only was the inventory significantly less on cards like Masterpiece Soul Ring and Mana Crypt um, and Rings of, of Bright Hearth uh, in North America than it was in Europe, but the price differences were were so big you could gap a tr- you know drive a truck through the arbitrage even if the prices didn't move off the line and that's the kind of situation that I love to be involved in where for instance masterpiece soul rings were in the US at about 100 to 110 about this time last year and in Europe we could get them for as low as $72 all in and so one of the first packages of cards that I arranged to pick up in Europe included things like masterpiece soul ring masterpiece um, Mana Crypt and Mox Opals um, and some chromatic lanterns and 
you know, the in on the soul rings was in the low seventies. The in on other vials was, you know, low mid seventies. Chromatic lanterns were closer to 30. I got some for 28 mana crypts in the $80 range, whatever. And the, the premise was, you know, even if I've just got to flip these out to buy lists in a few months, I'm probably going to be just fine. So there's almost zero to no risk. And then you and I started talking about it and we were digging deeper and we started talking about it on the cast and people were very skeptical and saying, oh, like, there's no way you can import from Europe profitably. That's not going to work. Um, don't tell people to do that. That's not a practical thing for them to do. And in the meantime, we had people like coming out of the woodwork offering to form partnerships. And, you know, those partnerships were all in all very profitable for both sides. You know, people that were picking stuff up for me in the UK were sending their cards that they bought alongside me over with mine. I'm selling those for them on eBay and, and making up the difference on the back end to them on PayPal. And, you know, in the, in that process made, you know, I sold about, it's going to, it looks like it's going to settle when I tally everything up somewhere in the 30, 30 to $35,000 us this year uh, of magic cards and a large component of, of the revenue and an even larger component of the profit was based on the inventory we picked up in Europe in the spring. Um, and I, I don't think it was until, you know, we had polished off a lot of the inventory in Europe and other people had tagged along and done the same before the prices really started to move on the U.S. side and people started to realize just how low inventory was on the Kaladesh inventions that mattered. And, you know, it wasn't until like April, May that the gap on the gap on that really closed, right? Um, I don't remember when exactly kind of it, it turned the corner. Uh, my recollection of this is a lot hazier than yours, apparently. Uh, I don't know. I, maybe people just talked to me less. I don't remember getting as much crap about that about it back then. I mean, I guess people were telling us that it was. I do vaguely remember people telling us that doing it, buying and selling in Europe was a bad idea and not worth it. And it was like, uh, it's literally worth every second I spend on it. I don't really know how you can tell me it's not. Um, well, we had. I distinctly remember like Chaz Andre from SCG's MTG Finance column telling us, drawing attention to like how and and maybe Tarkin as well saying you know, look at the curve for expeditions. They spiked and then they fell mm -hmm. back. But the thing is that this, the, the, it never held true if you really looked at the data because the spike on the expeditions was right up front. People were really excited about getting expedition scalding turns and stuff and they spiked real hard. Like there was a period where they were in the three to $400 range. Um, and then they started to fade as the people that could afford them managed to get their hands on them and the, the demand curve just proved to be relatively shallow. Um, and... There's also the, there was also the factor that a lot of the expeditions, if you want expedition scalding turn, you don't want it to be one of the four that's in your deck. You want it to be all four. Like, you know, people pick up a full playset of the same art. So that is a much bigger commitment, right? Like the price point is much higher because you might be spending 800 to 1,000 to acquire four scalding turns, whereas you can get one Masterpiece Soul Ring for 100 right. bucks. And so even now that the Masterpiece Soul Ring is at $200, you know, my recommendation was get in on that at 70 and my target was 140 and it peaked at 240 because the the number of people that are willing to pay, you know, impulse purchase a $200 card is much higher than the number of people that will spend 800. And so, you know, that was a significant factor. I would also argue that of all of the masterpieces, the Kaladesh frames are the most liked out of all of them. There are people that don't like the expeditions. Very few of us like the invocations. And, and so that also plays into it, but we were talking about like rings of bright hearth in episode 49, get in on it at 30, 
I think you can get out at 60 looking for 100% double up and instead it peaked at 90. I mean, tremendous 200% gain opportunity. And those were real exits. I've sold those cards consistently, less so now than six months ago, but had no trouble unloading like 20 Masterpiece Soul Rings in over the course of three months or so. Um, Masterpiece Chromatic Lanterns, because it's an a, a important uh, mana fixer in EDH, picking those up in the 30 to $32 range. Sell, I said target was 70. It peaked at 85. So that gave people 160% gain. Mana Crypt was very similar trajectory to Soul Ring. We said get in at 80 in episode 48 targeted it an exit at 130 and it peaked at 200 for 150% gain. I mean, if, if you prioritize that, like we told you to, you had a very good year. Yeah. I mean, we, we were both did a lot with those. Uh, and in general, I was a big fan of, of expedition, uh, well, I should say expeditions of masterpieces all year long. Um, it's certainly, I think my most successful overall venture this year, and it sounds like it was for you as well. Um, and I, I feel, you know, a lot of them have pulled back too, but I, I reason to believe that they'll rise, <laughs> they'll rise again. Um, you know, we kind of had that like initial fervor. People were excited. There was a couple months where they, they jumped up, uh, excitement kind of waned after that, um, which is kind of where we are now. But I think now you've just kind of got time on your side and you just kind of hang out, let these things move as they're going to. And, uh, another year or two. And I think these could, a lot of these could be pretty high north again just because um inventory will have had time to kind of drain a little bit more in a way that it, it still hasn't yet and, and there's two functions that i mean some of them have retraced um but many of them have held pretty close to their peaks like within 20 percent of their peaks and the reason for that is twofold on the e- side of the edh cards like crypt and soul ring and rings of bright hearth and chromatic lantern they hold steady because as they've gone into people's edh decks they never come out again I mean, that's that's the difference. It's a non-rotating format. And that makes a tremendous difference in how easy it is for vendors to get their hands on them, especially given that you can't just pop cases looking for these cards. If you want, if you were a dealer, a vendor trying to find a Masterpiece Soul Ring, there, there is no profitable way to do that by popping packs. It's just impossible. If you, you could pack cases and cases and you still wouldn't have a super predictable ratio in terms of which ones you would find in there. And there are, despite the success of that, subset some stinkers so you're not no one's going to be doing that right like even if distributors and vendors are holding cases and cases of that product none of them are opening them and and that means that there is a serious attrition principle in play against the the pre-existing inventory the remaining inventory and you know you've got a card like masterpiece soul ring that peaked up over in the 220 to 240 range and i sold a few uh, over 200 at one point and now is holding pretty steady with say you know 20 or 25 copies available on tcg player in the 200 to 225 range i mean nobody is in a hurry to sell, unload these at 140 because at what point will you even see this card in this pr- level of premium presentation again you you hit the nail on the head when you said that it um that the cards that it's a non-rotating format because these just get absorbed into people's decks and then they never move. They have no reason to move. And that is such a different character versus all of the other formats of magic. I mean, even like modern and legacy, which are non-rotating, you might pick up like a set of Kiki Jikis or what have you and use them for your deck. You play with them, but then you decide that you don't want to play that deck anymore. So you liquidate it to move it to another modern deck because you tend not to build 
you know, your, your, your modern decks aren't the same. They're a tool, whereas your EDH decks are a toy and you don't want to get rid of those. So you hold on to them. And, you know, even if you break up your, your Brago deck and you get rid of the, the you, you know, you don't need the soul ring or whatever anymore, or the extra planar lens, whatever. Uh, you don't get rid of it because you broke up that deck. You just put it back in your binder and either move into another deck or put it in your binder and hold on to it. Because why would you get rid of it? Like, you know, you'll use it again. So they really are like, very permanent in collections in a way that nothing else really is. Yeah, and it was interesting because there was a there was a weird distribution of modern cards in this because they were artifact focused. That the ones for the the, the ones that fit into Affinity, Ravager, and Opal, uh, and Ornithopter all saw spikes because it, it it was one of the only decks in modern that could be um, could have a large portion of these tricking out the deck. Where, whereas, you know, most of the other modern decks didn't really get much out of this. Yeah. And, and when the price points were 50 to 100 for a set, that meant that the, you could get a playset for two to 400 and you could trick out your whole deck for less than, you know, somebody in the 600 to $1,000 range, which not, as I said, you know, has a relatively small percentage of the population that's willing to do it. But when they were at their lows, you could do it for significantly less. And the deck was, you know, I, I saw several versions of Affinity locally that we're using all inventions and <laughs> you know and, and where they could and you know those decks looked cool that's uh that's quite a deck yeah so uh what else was on your list of stuff that went well um let's see i had several good edh calls this year um blind obedience was a really good one I just noticed that that had like no, I mean, not like I was a genius. I was like, oh, this card's in 15, 18,000 decks. Oh, if there's eight copies left and the foils are $2, huh, that's probably a good one. Uh, I picked up on that one. Um, that was good. I saw, let's see here, Maelstrom Nexus I really liked because of the five color stuff that was showing up. That that did pretty good. That uh, more than doubled in price. Uh, the replenish foils was a good call. That was right around the time that all the reserveless foils were spiking. So that was not too hard to guess. A blasphemous act was another good one. A uh, foil that had was like one of the most played red cards. Had very low inventory. It was like five bucks. It jumped up to twenty. Uh, so yeah. So just to retrace there a bit, the replenish foils going from seventy five to two fifty. So over a two hundred percent gain. Likewise with the blasphemous. Blasphemous Axe foils from six dollars to twenty, also a two hundred and thirty percent plus gain. Very nicely, very nicely done, sir. Yeah, yeah, those were. Thank you. They, I, I was, I was pleased with those. Um, yeah, they, those all went well. EDH was good to us this year. Um, how about you? What did you find this year other than your masterpiece series? Well, we timed the Etherworks Marvel call correctly in the springtime before it eventually got banned. Um, when it was looking like it was going to, it was setting up shop in the format um, after having not been good for a while. The Marvel decks ended up being too good. Um, and this was like when Sahili Marvel converted, uh, you know, six of eight uh, when it showed up at a major tournament. Uh, we called Marvel at four dollars uh, to get to ten, and indeed it peaked at ten before eventually being banned. So there was a if you were, had to play the deck, we got people in at the right time um, when the cards were cheap, and if you were flipping play sets for about three weeks there, you had a pretty good opportunity. Uh, yeah, that would have been good. I think you we you were able to, and I'm not saying we did, but you were able to triple dip. Aetherworks Marvel, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I went through at least two buying cycles with Aetherworks Marvel, buy-sell cycles. Um, 
And the only other standard one that that really jumped out that I did well with was Liliana's Mastery at the right time when it was about a dollar. And it wasn't just my voice. Several people were pointing attention to it as it started to um, look like something that would have solid long-term casual potential and might set up shop as a reasonable deck in standard. Uh, around episode 67, I called it at a dollar um, and said it might hit six. It ended up peaking in the four to five dollar range. So you could exit play sets for a crisp $10 bill after fees and time spent. Okay. Um, let's see. Ceremonious rejection. That did really well. The foils on that spiked considerably uh, from like three and change to like 10 or 12 bucks because people were sideboarding it against Eldrazi. Um, yeah. That's pulled way back though. So that was a short period. Dragon Tempest 2 foils were really good pick there um, because it turned out that the Dragon's EDH deck was really popular. Who would have guessed? But then they got reprinted in uh, IMA. So that, that also uh, withdrew considerably. So those were shorter term uh shorter term actions. And, and I would hope that, you know, given that the tribal hype cycle around Commander 2017, that people got out on those foil Dragon Tempests before it had any chance at a reprint. I would have argued that it was probably safe um, from reprint and, and would have been surprised at IMA, but I know that the copies I had sold so briskly into the tribal hype that it wasn't much of an issue. Right, yeah. Um, how about yourself? What else you got? Uh, Spell Queller Foils recently made people some good money. I called that on both episode 70 and 86. The first uh, call was at when they were at $9. I recently sold a few different play sets for uh, over 100 apiece. So that's a 150, 170% gain. Um, Spell Queller looks like it's going to be uh, a significant card in modern for quite some time. So I don't think you need to be in any rush to unload your personal play set. And even if you're holding speculation, I think you can sell up the chain. I, those could end up being $40 foils. Oh, yeah. Spellcaller, uh, very powerful card. Where was this first mentioned? Was it episode 70? I feel like, oh, I wrote about it. That's what it was. I didn't talk about it on the cast. I wrote about it. That's why that feels familiar. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's a good one. That one could definitely be kind of just a permanent part of uh, modern, I think. Not a huge component, but definitely always there couple of really good EDH picks at various points. Episode 50 called it Expropriate at $6. Um, I had opened a, a foil Expropriate in uh, one of my Conspiracy 2 boxes, which are still an excellent value, by the way. Um, one of the other things we told people to put some money into this year, if, if only to get maximum value out of their you know casual box openings. Um, Expropriate's at $6. That's now at $15. Um, oh, sorry, I called it at, to get to $15. It's now at $12. So you already got a double up. And it's probably going to get to 20 before all is said and done, uh, before you get a chance to see it reprinted. I would think Expropriate shows up in like something like Commander 2018 or Commander 2019. It'd be an, an obvious reprint there. Um, so maybe keep an eye on uh, uh, the announcement cycle for that product line and also um, lean towards the foils rather than the non-foils on that card if you're still interested. The, um, the other one uh, that I think we both agreed on pretty early on was that Anointed Procession um, as a token doubler uh, for EDH that the foils were going to get there. Called that at $6 foils close to its release, um, saying that it would probably, that a solid target would be something like 15 and it, it's at 13 right now. I was surprised with Anointed Procession. Um, I mean, it was a great, it was a great pickup uh, overall. I guess it was... I didn't expect, I think, a standard foil, in-print standard foil, to increase so hard on um, 
on EDH demand like that, but it certainly did. I mean, it's a, it's a lesson for the future. Like, you know, if, but which is funny because you then compare it to Panharmonicon, which like moved in the foils moved in price, but only by like 20 or 30%, not like three, you know, 200% like we saw here. So I don't know a little, uh, I, I don't, I don't have a really good reason, a really good way to understand why anointed procession did so well versus Panharmonicon foils. So I think my, my argument would be that EDH already has a rich subculture of token focused individuals who just like to flood the board where, and there's a significant decks um, that take advantage of it. You know, Atraxa versions um, are, are certainly present and there's a bunch of other token focused commanders, whereas things that come into play don't really have an obvious dominant commander per se. Um, and that at some point in the future, there will be such a commander and then a card um, a, a card like Panharmonicon is going to be all the better. Um, I've also got Panharmonicon brews in Frontier that are all, that are super super fun. Um, you know, not super competitive, but certainly fun. Uh, you know, Siege Rhino into Panharmonicon is a good place to be if you like to do silly things. <laughs> That's amusing, but it re- really in modern is that really the best best you can do? No, no, in Frontier. Oh, Frontier. I'm sorry, I misplaced. You said Frontier and I heard Modern. Uh, yeah, I suppose that actually probably is quite good in Frontier. A lot more of a pain in the butt to deal with. No, it's not good. It's just fun. Yeah, sure. Okay, sure. <laughs> Front, Frontier, Frontier is a pretty sharp format uh, that is, you know, you're facing Jeskai Black Brews and the like. Um, and either works Marvel, uh, Energy Brews. Um, but I did call As Foretold uh, foils uh, for the mid to long term in episode 97 not so long ago that have always got, already gone from... I called it to go from 12 to 25 and almost immediately it hit 27 um, on the back of the mono blue living death deck doing well uh, online and some of that spilling into real life, people picking up the necessary cards. Um, and I love this pick in particular because when As For Told was first released, I ran a, uh, a survey on Twitter where I asked people at what level they would get in on the foils and it was a resoundingly negative response from hundreds, hundreds of individuals that got it wrong. <laughs> nothing like uh forcing people to eat humble pie huh well i just i mean this card cost cast cards for free <laughs> and so falling back on the it does nothing when it hits the table um only goes so far because cards that cast cards for free will get there eventually yeah it turns out that has a bit of a history in magic um we've seen that be broken once or twice <laughs> which would explain yeah. your carries out you know why you like that the Kari's expertise so much. That's it. So you know, there's a reason for you to like that. And and the difference there is Kari Zevs does it once and only does it with something three casting costs or less, and it has to be in your hand already. Yeah. Whereas as we're told, can give you a benefit on their turn and your turn for every turn thereafter. And so yes, against a a very fast deck like Affinity or Mono Red Burn, um, you're going to have trouble. But in a format that's more mid-range or control-focused, it can be a, a, an important card if your deck is constructed properly. And in EDH, I still think it's got potential to be explored um, uh, in the right deck because if you've got a, a deck that can cycle cards from your graveyard back to your hand on a regular basis, then, you know, as we're told, can do a lot, can do, you know, generate a tremendous amount of card advantage given that you get to do it on each of your opponent's turns. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's an awesome card, and I would expect to see it show up in... Uh, modern in some capacity more than we have so far uh, just mm-hmm. because it, it's it's capable of so much. And it's just so cool. How can you not love a card that does that? So uh, tell you, Sashiro the Anointed, you picked, uh, you picked that out uh, heading into Snake Tribal? Yeah. 
Yeah, that was, uh, we found out, oh, shoot, I didn't copy over the notes. That was, we found out that Almond Cat was going to have snakes. So I went back uh, and was like, all right, well, if if snakes show up as a tribal component, what's going to be good? And it was, oh, you know, Sashiro is very good for that. And he's he's nifty in EDH and he's a cool commander. So threw him in and it, it worked out well. Uh, I'm not too upset about that. Uh, and I think the price stuck reasonably well too. So, I mean, it's one of those cards. It's one of those cards that if people played in that era, they almost certainly have one sitting around in a binder. Um, and you know that they could pull that out and trade it out if they if they get the timing right. The um, one of the other picks that I made for modern was Traverse the Ovenwald. Um, episodes sixty four and ninety eight just recently put, picked it out as something. Um, that hadn't moved between those two episodes, but still looks like it's just near the tipping point. Um, still recommendation in the eight to ten dollar range to hit to hit twenty. But now, you know, after the last pick, uh, after the last call out, it's now up to sixteen. So you've already got a hundred percent double up versus the original call. And you know, my target for hit, hit, it to hit twenty to twenty five still stand by that. But yeah, I mean, I like the card uh, for sure. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, I picked this car and then I picked it again. I'm just gonna keep picking it until uh, I get spot out. I don't care. <laughs> um, no, it, it is a good choice. Uh, one of my best picks, uh, amusingly enough, if you were really fast, was uh, New Perspectives. It was right before the Pro Tour, and I was like, uh, this card. This we're hearing that this deck might be good. There's a lot of cycling stuff around. You know, you could pick them up at like 50 cents. And I was like, you know, if you can get them dirt cheap and you get a bunch of piles, you can sell them like Saturday morning on uh, on TCG and eBay when people think the deck is good. And you just have to hope that you get your copies out the door before the deck kind of takes a, a turn for the worse, which is basically what happened. So if you were really quick with this, you were able to make profit. I know I made uh, a couple bucks flipping play sets, um, but it was the t- it was that was a timeline measured in hours. Yeah, the, the the graph on this card is hilarious. Like it's it's down near zero for the majority of its lifespan, with that spike up to four dollars, where you can flip out a playset for like eight to ten dollars profit. Yeah. Um, and I had a stack of them that I had picked up on a whim. Um, I think it's an SCG pre order. Um, thinking that it, you know, it's just one of these like kind of volume plays that I make occasionally and don't really go too deep on. Um, but I managed to flip like 12 or 16 of the 20 copies and leave four sitting around as a playset, And it wasn't any kind of major event, but, uh, yeah, it was a solid pick. Yeah. Um, let's see. So you, uh, you picked Gaia's Cradle at some point earlier this year at 200. Isn't that correct? Yeah. Episode 77. Um, now it's sitting at around 270. So that's, you know, percentage wise, not a big deal, but if you got to choose between making a hundred percent on a dollar card and 35% on a $200 card. Um, I shouldn't have to explain to you why the, the 35% on the $200 card is better. Um, percentage gains never tell the whole story because you have to compare them against your real world um, uh, cost per hour for your time. So if you make $10 an hour or $20 an hour or $40 an hour or whatever, depending on where you are in your career, um, you need to factor that in to the real dollar gains that a spec makes you versus the time you're putting into it. If you can make 3,000%, but it's on pennies into, you know, high pennies, mm-hmm. and you still come out of that with less money than you need to buy lunch, then you probably should have spent way less time, bought one relatively expensive card, and 
you know, you know, got a full dinner out of it. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's why I would be much more interested making 50% on a Gaius Cradle than I would any of these, you know, dollar cars and why I would even be interested in, uh, you know, making 3% on a $30,000 Bitcoin investment rather than any magic card. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> crypto is generally measured in, in hundreds of percentage points lately. But, you know, at some point, those those markets will stabilize. Um, you know, with Gaia's Cradle, we're talking about 5K EDH decks, reserve list card, legacy card, never going to be reprinted um, because of the reserve list. And so even at 270, for this to get to 400 might be a very reasonable pickup. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's see, I didn't have too much else this year that really blew me away uh well how about yourself i mean this is mostly stuff that we picked at that got 100 percent plus returns we had tons of stuff that that got 25 to 75 percent that didn't make this list um where if you were on the ball and you were selling play sets and you know you picked up two three four play sets you did really well um and lots of other picks that were just stable as we said couple other ones that jumped out at me that that were particularly good even though they weren't 100 plus was dragon lord jamoka foils uh called them on episode 74 to get from 15 to 30 and they're sitting at lowest price on tcg's about 27 right now uh, with dry, dragon tribal hype and that being a particularly good uh dragon card uh for commander uh, that seemed like a solid pick that worked out cavernous souls i called out shortly after it was re-released in modern masters 2017 episode 68 and again on episode 92 when it was a little more expensive but at episode 68 it was at 38 bucks and i called it to get to 70 and it's already back to 60 so i mean remember when modern masters 2017 came out the the dominant narrative was oh my god the prices of modern cards are crashing it's the death of modern finance (laughs) <laughs> and almost immediately thereafter, we did an episode where we said, listen, these are the cards that have fallen significantly. Not only um, uh, are our modern cards, uh, the window of opportunity on modern cards from these master sets strongly in your favor, but the most important ones are going to rebound. We've seen this trend again and again, that as long as you don't hyperprint things like they have done with iconic masters, um, and even in that case, the most important cards of the set that are played as four ofs, that are played in a bunch of different decks, that are not specific to a, 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 a certain deck doing well in the format, are going to rebound. And we saw exactly that with Cavern of Souls, which is now being propped up by the um, the ascendance of five-color humans as a new uh, uh, deck in the modern format. Mm-hmm. So uh, hopefully you picked up your Caverns at, you know, in the spring when you had the best opportunity to do so. And you know that would have benefited you 50 or 60 percent and that's a card that's going to get reprinted again down the road um in a year or two but in the meantime you're going to get get to see it probably get back to its its original peak in the you know 80 dollar range or so yeah I, overall i thought it was a pretty good year for pickups um i felt like i didn't have quite as many that were humongous explosions uh and part of that i think was just the the nature of magic finance this year but i was still pleased overall with how things went yeah and i should the, there's also a, a short list here I just want to go through real quick. This, these are things that are on the bubble that haven't really hit their tipping point yet. But as I was checking through our data, I realized that inventory on these had gotten really low and that these all look like reasonable picks um, for right now. So let's just, we're not in our actual our selected weekly picks quite yet, but I just want to throw these out there for people to take a look at the, the inventory levels and make their own judgment. 
Um, at various points during the year, I called out the following cards. Were of Invention Foils um, to go from 4 to $10 on the basis of them being included in Lantern Control builds that have been updated to include the card as a 4 of. Um, and they're currently sitting at about 6 um, I would now say that those can get to 10 to 15 and on the basis of them looking like they are going to be a permanent inclusion in Lantern Control. And unless Lantern Control looks too strong heading into the potential shakeup of the modern, modern band list in the spring, um, I would say those are pretty safe. Sort of the, sort of the animist foils for EDH, um, a card that shows up in 14,000 decks quietly. Um, called those uh, mid-year when they were at $10 to get to $20. They're still sitting at $10, um, but the inventory is very shallow at $10, and it looks like it will make that move to $20 in 2018. Um, Insurrection Foils from Onslaught in Episode 81 called out at $20 to get to $35. They're now at about $24, so a relatively modest 20% gain. But that's basically the Red Cyclonic Rift, and it's in 5,000 EDH decks. Um, you know, if you want one of those for your red deck, go ahead and grab it because it's never going to be any cheaper. On Lantern Control, that's a that's a tricky one. That one makes me a touch nervous just because uh, that feels like it's really fits, fits the play pattern of stuff Wizards does not care for. In the sense, like similar to eggs and things of that nature, like it's not it's not necessarily the deck is too good, but it's maybe not the type of play that they want to encourage people to be having. Uh, if, if it shows starts dominating top eights on a regular basis, it's definitely going to get the ban hammer um, because it's such shitty makes for such shitty coverage. Yeah. Um, it's it's a, it's like watching paint dry, watching that deck play out, um, especially if you don't understand mag- like don't really know the format all that well. Almost as bad as watching limited. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, as long as it stays on the fringes of the format and only shows up occasionally, I think it's fine and safe. Um, but. It, as it, if it comes becomes a dominant deck, then then you don't want to be sitting on that card because it's not going to be. That's one of those cards that's very specific to that deck in particular. Um, yeah. So I also still like Haven of the Spirit Dragon foils. Uh, called it on episode sixty nine and seventy nine as as kind of an essential tribal card that got reprinted, but not as a foil. Um, so to move from five dollars to fifteen, and it's still sitting at about four fifty. So I mean, but the inventory on on copies of those foils below ten is very low. So you could snap those up for, you know, your potential future use. And it seems very safe, given that it just got a reprint and non-foil, to, to be, you know, a, a, a good appreciator in foil for two, three, four years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the final one on that list is Mystical Tutor Foils from EMA. Um, called it on episode 72 to go from 14 to 25. They're sitting at about $21 now. Um, so that's like a 50% gain. Um, but again, that's a card that I don't expect to see again for a while. So I would think that those those foils will actually get to 30 before there's any risk. So if you're picking them up in and around 18 to 20 um, to potentially trade out at 30, that seems solid. Yeah, all of these definitely are pretty well positioned uh, over the next year. And remember, a lot of our picks, you know, our picks don't need to jump like within a month or two of us talking about them. I'm used to taking it taking years for a lot of this stuff to mature. Uh, the speed at which things have been happening over the last year is really, I would say, uncommon. Yeah, and I mean, I think like I took criticism from Stu Summers at one point this year. He was saying like our picks are too long range. He likes to flip things out in a much shorter time frame. And my response to that is if you can get out of things in like six to 12 weeks, uh, power to you. There are definitely better operators. There are guys out there that are running silent that I talk to, but never make any noise, don't write any articles, don't appear on podcasts that are 
even like from us to a beginner, they are, is us to them. Like there, there are operators out there that are leveraging buy lists and, and dealing in volume and are moving in and out of positions very quickly and doing great things. But I would argue that that is more of a part-time to full-time job (laughs) to operate like that and makes you kind of more of the classical grinder. Um, Whereas we're more targeted on the armchair speculator who is, you know, looking to, um, doesn't have more than a few hours a week to focus on this stuff and is either enhancing, you know, getting in on decks or cards at the lowest possible position or is looking to sit on stuff for, you know, I usually target about six to 12 months. And when I do better than that, that's awesome. You know, the certainly the stuff from Europe, uh, including the masterpieces and a bunch of the EDH foils that we picked up, um, was able to flip those in, on like a two to four month time frame for the most part and do very, very well with them. But you know, I'm not afraid to sit on some of the, you know, more penny stock stuff that doesn't make up more than 5% of my portfolio of magic um, for, like you said, two, three, four years for some of this crap, like dubious challenge um, that we'll probably never get there, but may one day do something. Yeah, the, um, you can definitely do this stuff faster uh, than we do um, and, and shoot for much shorter flips. But the amount of time that that takes is like, it's a lot. That is, like you said, that's a, basically a full-time job. That is not something that happens easily. And, and I find that a lot of that action is networking-based. So oh, yeah. To, yeah, to be an effective sure. grinder, you need to either attend a lot of events. And obviously, like the new rules put out by Channel Fireball this week, more or less prohibiting that kind of activity, um, is a, a damper <laughs> on, the, on, on that kind of action at major events, at least GPs. Um, and the, a lot of it is about people that have either worked with or for vendors in the past have acted as buyers for those vendors or have been part of their teams in some other way. And so if you happen to have access to those relationships, there are things you can do that, you know, guys like us can't, uh, do as easily. Um, so, you know, from a pure speculation perspective, you're working with less tools. Yeah, it, it, it's a different type of, of activity too. So it's, there's a lot of money in it, but it is essentially a completely different game than what we're playing, I think. Well, I mean, when you guys are talking to Ed on on Cartel, um, you know, the guy's flying all over the, the, the planet. And and part of that is lifestyle and and part of that is is action, right? But that's that's a job. That's, yes. and, and the overhead on that process is so much more um, than what we're doing. Like the announcement about what's happening at GPs and the, the focus on, you know, casual trading impacts us almost at not at all. Cause you and I go to a, only a few events a year. Mo, you know, we're, we're mostly buying if we're doing anything on the floor. When you came to visit me in Toronto for GP Toronto this spring, you know, we bought underpriced masterpieces on the floor, but we weren't really trying to sell anything. Nope. Yeah, I was all about. Well, I did sell some stuff, but I was definitely more interested in buying than selling. Yeah, and and but you sold on to buy list to a vendor. Yes, yes. You know, yeah, we were, I, I brought stuff that I knew that I was going to buy list. I had like an ogre box type of thing that I was trying to get rid of, but for the most part, I was curious to see what I could find that was interesting, rather than just looking to dump all sorts of odds and ends. Yeah, and I and I'm like I'm totally into the like cross border arbitrage, and like when I went to Japan six years ago, I paid for that trip with toy arbitrage, and um, that was kind of before I was serious about MGG finance. Um, but was very serious about toy finance. And if I was to go back today, I would look forward to attempting to pay for the entire trip again with a combination of the two. But it's not the kind of thing I'm going to be doing every three weeks. No, 
No, Ugh, no, <laughs> no. Um, all right. Is there anything else in our best and worst this year that you wanted to cover? No, I think we did a pretty good overview there. And, you know, I'd congratulate uh, you, sir, on a, on a solid year of, of solid advice to our listeners. Um, we're definitely never going to get it all right, but I, I think we're doing pretty good. Hey, thank you. And good job to you, too. I thought we, uh, I thought we did a good job of, of helping out our listeners this so, year. So, so selfless to just ask his ourselves. But, you know, I, <laughs> I, I hope it's helping everybody. The, um, you know, we, I, we do get good feedback from everyone, both critical and, and in thanks uh, via messages on Twitter. And it's certainly, um, you know, one of the things that I think we both uh, make available to listeners is to contact us on Twitter. Um, you know, if you're planning something out, we're always happy to share a few words to help get you pointed in the right direction and try to optimize your trading patterns. Um, mm -hmm. Let's move right on to our weekly picks. We do have a few cards to call out this week. Okay. Um, so my first one this week is Tectonic Edge Expeditions. Going through back through the data, I started to get interested about whether expeditions have made any moves lately. And I noticed that a few key expeditions have seen a hollowing out of their available inventory. Tectonic Edge has a couple of different promo editions that are available as low as $3. Um, so that certainly tempers the demand profile for the expedition version. But I pulled an expedition version out of a fat pack the other day and was looking at it like, wow, like this art is incredible in this particular foiling process with the like lava bubbling up from underneath the tectonic shift. Um, if you've never held one of the expedition tectonic edges, I encourage you to take a look at one closely. They are gorgeous. Um, and you can pick these up at in and around $24. You might be able to get them as cheap as 20 or 22 locally. And I think the sell target on these is going to be something like 40 bucks because given the amount of promos it's seen, including the expedition, I don't expect to see this card in, in a nice foil, a premium foil again for quite some time. Yeah, it, it's, it's a really cool looking card. I do love the expedition. A, a lot of the expeditions look very cool. So that guy just especially is, is great. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's essentially a, I'm going to call it a modern staple. Uh, you know, people aren't usually playing four, but it's probably one of the premier land destruction strip mine, you know, legacy of strip mine type cards in modern. So there's definitely value there. Yeah, between between this and Ghost Quarter and the new one from Amonkhet Block, uh, that pretty much rounds out that that set. But this, it's yeah. also, but this is also a land with that's in ten thousand EDH decks because being able to get rid of a problematic land in that format is also valuable. <clears throat> and you know, if you've got significant mana fixing, then you can usually afford to have a tectonic edge in your deck that you might want to search up with a traverse Elvenwald or something to take care of a problem that's on the table. Um, and the other thing about this is that. Uh, people need to remember that the expeditions came out in BFZ, most of the good ones, but that the supply was much lower on Oath of the Gatewatch. Because remember, Oath of the Gatewatch was Eldrazi Winter, and that was another set that probably didn't sell as well as it was intended to because people were so down on that standard format. Um, yet another bump in the road for standard not that long ago. And so the overall supply of these Tectonic Edge expeditions is relatively low. And I could, it, it won't take much at all, like maybe 30 or 40 copies sold before the price is going to peak over 40. Yeah, I agree. It, 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 you know, it won't take too long. Well, shouldn't say this. There's enough demand out there between you know, EDH, where it's essentially a strip mine, and Modern, where it's a useful utility land. Uh, to, to drain this because again, the expeditions have only been out for what three ish years now. Um, two, which is no two, two years from now, two, two, two years and three months or so 
since the their original release in Battle for Zendikar, right? Well, yeah, Battle for Zendikar was two falls ago. Let's see. Yeah, two falls ago. Yeah, you're right. So, I mean, that's not that long, right? Like, in the magic world, that is not that long. It's October 2015. So, yeah, two years. That's, you know, and we're talking about cards, these sort of long-term collector's items. Two years is nothing. Like, that's... It takes like a year, a year and a half for sort of that initial glut to slowly dry up before you kind of get to the point where prices start to push because it's so hard to find copies. Um, so the expeditions and invocations and uh, inventions overall, I think, are still only just beginning to mature in general. So one with as good of a demand profile as this that people also don't feel the need to buy four of is pretty cool. And, and the price curve on this online is like you can get a double handful in the $23, $24 range, and then you're looking at 30 So, you know, it's not a, a card you want to sleep on if you're interested in it, and it's not going to take very many people speculating before it's going to make a move. No. Uh, all right, so my first pick this week, similar thought, is um, Diabolic Intent, the invocation. Uh, sort of an odd choice, but and another long-term grower. Uh, I was shocked to see that there's only 13 vendors on tcg with copies of diabolic intent in play right now um compared to like 30 40 50 60 for some of the a lot of the other ones it's one of the lowest stock invocations right now um and i mean it's basically just demonic tutor with the additional cost you have to sacrifice a creature which in edh i'm not even sure that you can call that a cost uh so you've got it's in, it's about six thousand decks right now uh we know um You've got a 6,000 deck EDH card. There's only 13 vendors. It's one of the invocations. They're definitely the worst of the three masterpieces, but they're 30 bucks, which is almost the floor for these types of cards. They'll get down to like 18, 19, but those are for copies that like literally nobody needs and is playing with like grindstone type of thing or is one of the worst ones. And um, they're even less interesting ones in the invocation series but diabolic intent is is one of the most popular invocations there's very little supply the price is right uh close to the floor so for 30 bucks i think this can get up into the 50 60 maybe even the 75 dollar range um you know given several months or a year or two this wasn't on my radar but it sure as hell is now um there's a few things worth mentioning that further support your your pick it's not attached to any one given commander. Like you see it in Marin, you see it in Prosh, you see it in Kyrador, Gave, Alicia, but at a modest level. So a lot of people aren't even aware of this card. And as awareness grows, it's going to see more play. The original uh, version was in Plain Shift and it does have a foil, but those are very hard to come by. That's quite a long time ago. And because it's a de- demonic tutor with a minimal downside, I really don't see this showing up in standard anytime soon, right? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. I, there's, <laughs> I can't imagine. Right. So that means that it's probably relegated to future printings in supplemental sets. We've already got it once here as a premium foil. That's leads me to believe that you might see it set show up in a commander set as a non foil. Um, and I think that gives this card, this masterpiece, the breathing room to make a move. Yeah, I, I agree. Thank you. Cool. Good good choice. (laughs) Good, good pick. So the other one that caught my attention um, amongst, you know, the masterpieces um, was Hallowed Fountain Expeditions. Um, I'd say like in the next six months or so, the confidence level of eight, um, if you buy price these at 70, 
um, you're probably going to be able to unload them over 100. They're in 25,000 EDH decks, Hallowed Fountain is, um, as a staple dual land. Uptick in Modern Plague due to Jeskai Geist and blue-white control variants and extremely low supply for these expeditions now. Um, not the thing kind of the kind of percentage return that's super exciting, but if you can get, you know, 40 to 50% gain on these in less than a year, that could be a pretty good place to be. Yeah. I mean, I agree. You know, it's another one of these cases where you've got, it's an expedition. So everything I said about tectonic edge is basically in the same position. It's very popular in EDH. It's a great um, substitute if you don't have dual lands. And even if you do, you can still run it. Uh, I mean, you know, most of what I said about Tech Edge applies here, but it it is definitely a good choice. Yeah, I mean, I'm even seeing inventory that I looked at two days ago on TCG has already dried up. So, I mean, I wouldn't sleep on this. I think you want to move pretty quick on the on the Hollow Fountains. Okay. Um, My other card this week is uh, Diluvian Primordial Foils. Um, It's in 6,500 decks. it's a really powerful creature if you've ever played with it before. Um, it's brutal how you can slam this down. And I mean, you could basically end the game with this spell. Uh, with the Living Primordial, you can like mill somebody's uh, like Rise of the Dark Realms and then cheat a Diluvian Primordial in the play for three mana and then just like end the game on the spot type of thing. It's a ridiculous card. Um, you can also clone the creature with like writer replication and that type of stuff to run the effect back. So it, it, it does so much the first time it comes into play and you can use it pretty easily. It was only in gate crash. Supply is pretty low at this point. Um, I think there were 18 vendors with copies right now. So, you know, you're paying 250 ish, three bucks a piece. There's not that many out there. It's really popular. Uh, the only thing that really concerns me is a reprint. Um, you know, the primordial circle uh, cycle was clearly designed to return. Um, but again, I'm talking about the foil. So, you know, if we just see like a commander 2018 reprint and it's non foil, that doesn't really hurt us. In fact, it helps. So, uh, yeah, at 253 bucks, I think this is can get into the 10 to $15 range as a popular EDH foil. There's almost no inventory on this card and I had completely forgotten it exists, but massive. Im- it's, it's got that expropriate type feel for EDH, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you don't really think of this being that like you're like, oh, cast some instants and sorceries, and then your opponent casts it, and you're like, you look through the graveyard, and you're like, ugh, uh, <laughs> we're done here. <laughs> yeah, I, I like this a lot. There's, I don't actually think this is going to be at all a priority <clears throat> on anyone's on radar wizards to reprint anytime soon, and as such, I think easily these foils could hit ten dollars. Yeah, and it what makes it even I was kind of thinking about it here is it's harder for them to print the cycle because sylvan primordial he got banned didn't he am i remembering that correctly or is he still legal no he sylvan primordial ended up getting banned which means they can't reprint like reprinting the cycle would be kind of weird because you're reprinting. i'm sorry yeah it's tricky yeah so like it i guess my point being it's harder to put it in standard because you can't reprint the whole cycle so they are more likely to put it into a sealed product like arch enemy or commander which means you're less likely to see the foil show up yep good call good call thank you uh 
So my last one for this week is also going to be pretty hard to track down, but definitely worth checking your local trade binders and shop because I think this is going to be a big one down the road. Search for Azkanta buy a box promos that only came out of the treasure chest packs that were distributed uh, in two waves uh, related to Black Friday, only to LGSs. Confidence level on this is nine if you can get in on it at the right price. Um, Search for Azkanta has set up shop as a, a reasonably important card in modern as a one or a two of in various decks. You see it played in standard, in legacy, in EDH. Um, and this has got to be have one of the lowest availabilities in print runs of any important card um, this year that is likely to be in demand down the road and unlikely to see a similar reprint anytime soon. Um, if, you, if you don't know much about these, they these are the ones that on the flip side, they have the map of Ixalan on the back. And uh, all told together, they form the full map. Um, they are gorgeous in foil. I pulled the uh, the Legionnaire's Landing or whatever, the white one, um, in a pack I got in, under the Christmas tree and was stunned at how nice the maps uh, map foils look and started trying to track them down and almost immediately realized that there are basically no Search for Azkanta ones anywhere. And that if you can get them anywhere in the $30 to $40 range, I think that your sell, a sell target in the $60 to $80 range is going to be pretty likely within 6 to 12 months. That's pretty nice. I uh, I remember you mentioned this to me a day or two ago. And I was like, I, I don't know if I like buying this, you know, standard promo card at 40, you know, $30, $40 seems like a lot. Um, and then you're like, wait, this isn't a standard card. And I looked it up and I, I was surprised to see how varied the demand was on like a MPG Top 8. It was showing up not only in, you know, you see it in standard in some of the control decks, but it was also in modern. It was also in commander. It was also in legacy. And I was like, geez, okay. Apparently there's quite a demand for this card all over the place, which bodes well for it, uh, maintaining that price even after it, it moves out of standard. So I think this is, you know, if you can find it, definitely one of the better choices available. I mean, Legacy, Mir- Legacy Miracles runs this card now, and that's like a, a deck with quite the pedigree, right? Yeah. So the if, they've, if they're convinced that it earns a slot in, in that, you know, finely tuned, over-examined uh, archetype mm-hmm. in that format then you have to be thinking that this card is solid. And I think this card is probably underplayed in EDH so far. I mean, the, the ability to put things in your graveyard is one thing, but once it flips over, it's a constant source of uh, card advantage that is difficult to target as a lamp. That's for sure. And it's a really powerful card. Um, and I do agree that we will be seeing it for for months and months to come in modern and EDH, where it's just going to be one of those small utility creatures that does you a lot of good, which is always useful. Yeah, I mean, you're going to have... You're going to have to move fast on these because they're just not around. The other part of this play is if you can track down any of the treasure uh, chest packs that are sealed, um, I think those are going to be great long-term holds because this isn't the only one of those flip cards that's going to be in demand down the road. Like Keep in mind, this also, those packs can also potentially have uh, foil gro- uh, map uh, growing rights uh, of Itlamok, uh, etc. So they're... You know, there's 10 different options there, some of them not so exciting, but at least five or six of those are, are likely to be in demand uh, in the future. Um, and those packs c- can be had in the like 10 to $20 range, depending on where you're sourcing them from, if you can find them. Uh, side note, as far as I can tell, and I've still got to confirm this, um, and if a, uh, a listener can do it for us, all the better. I think that th- there was a Japanese version of those packs, which means that there are Japanese foil um, search for Azkantas out there. 
um, with the map on the back. Those must be a exceedingly rare. And given that the Japanese are into tech card, technical cards like that, going to be very difficult to get your hands on and could end up being a two or three hundred dollar card down the road. I'll have to message Ed. Ed might know because now I'm, I'm curious about that if those are out there because I, I would agree with you uh, that that would be a cool a cool little card to track down. The uh, Growing Rights of Atolmic was also an interesting one to keep your eye out for because that seems like it could be, uh, you know, we're focusing on Search for Escanta right now, but Atolmic could certainly grow uh, over the long term and even eclipse it, I think, given that it's doing a Gaia's Cradle impression. Yeah. I mean, the it's not Gaia's Cradle, but it's like it's still, it might not be a 10 out of 10 power level, but it's certainly a 7 or 8 out of 10 in the right EDH deck. Exactly, exactly. Um, okay, are you ready to hop into our topics this week? Yeah, well, I mean, we've covered a lot of this already, and this is getting to be a pretty long mega episode, but yeah, oh, we, should yeah. Through, we should go through these and talk about the, the top most important MGG finance trends of 2017. So um, I guess the first one we've already touched on to a, a pretty significant degree was the European arbitrage opportunity, which um, I would argue was the least... Um, uh, the one that the least people participated in uh, to the greatest detriment. Um, I think it was the biggest opportunity of the year to be in on masterpieces and EDH foils in the first six months of 2017. Wouldn't you? Yes. Yeah. That was a huge component of my activity this year. And I think, uh, you know, anyone that managed to get into it was very happy with the outcome. I mean, it was definitely a volume play. Like, it, you didn't do it to try to get a $20 card for $5 off. You did it if you were willing to put hundreds or thousands into the market and, you know, bother, take the couple of hours. And admittedly, it took a little bit of effort, but not a lot, to find a trading partner in Europe that was willing to collect cards for you. And then maybe they sent them along with yours, like on a monthly basis or something. And then you flipped them out and gave them back some of their money and 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 away you went. Um Part of it was that the euro to the U.S. dollar was significantly better in the first half of the year. That gap has closed some. I think we're about 10% worse than we were now than we were in, say, June. Um, so I'm doing less of it for sure. But it's, you know, I, I picked up some of those search for us contas via European contact the other day and got them for 28 apiece. So, you know, the, the opportunity and that was all in. So the, the opportunities are still out there. You got to be paying attention to what's happening on Magic Card Market for sure. Yeah, I agree. There's definitely some act, plenty, plenty of action. There has been action there before. It's less now, but it's still out. Excuse me, out there. Um, so worth keeping an eye out uh, on that. Uh, the masterpiece series uh, was another big part of this year, and, and you know, we like you said, we talked about that, but that was a huge component of of all of this year, right? Like how much that mattered in so many different ways and, and all the cars that spiked and what have you. So that was, that was another big, big part of this year. I mean, I put thousands into that and got thousands more out and I'm still sitting on a significant chunk of inventory because I was buying up the chain too. I was so confident in Masterpiece Soul Ring that I was bu- I bought a bunch in the 70 to $80 range and then later in the 90 to $100 range and then bought more in the 110 to $115 range. And felt confident the entire time, and mm-hmm. and it's it's been settled, well settled over two hundred as it's as it's like its floor for months now. So, am I selling as many masterpieces per week as I was six months ago? No, the the magic works in cycles of hype and focus, and as time goes on, more of the people that can afford a card may already have it. But um, 
you know, as long as Soul Ring doesn't get banned in and Matt and Mana Crypt and some of the other, you know, overpowered cards don't get banned in EDH, then those are really good cards to be sitting on because at minimum they're significant trade bait. So I mean it was one of the things that I looked at trading into crypto recently. Um, you know, as because and and the, that the person I was dealing with was amenable to because they are such reliable two hundred dollar bills. <laughs> Trading invention soul rings for cryptocurrency, <laughs> and and think and think about what it's like. You know what that looks like to your bottom line when you're taking things you picked up at $100, trading it into $200 in crypto, and then the crypto goes up 60% the next week. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, we also saw another reserve list buyout. This is kind of the second time this has happened. It happened a couple of years ago, uh, and it triggered again this year. I don't remember what the catalyst was. That was in the spring, and that's lasted... I mean, that's lasted for months now. Uh, you know, at first, it was a deluge of cards that spiked. I remember looking back at some of the shows from like April or whatever it was or March. And it was like, you know, 35 rows of cards that had spiked that week. And but even still today, you know, we I can look back at the list of top movers for the week. And there's, a, you know, an, a weird reserve list card every time. So people are still trying to make moves on that. Um, you know, magic is is old and getting older. And those cards from that era are getting scarcer and scarcer as people go after them. And uh, you know, there's never more than two or three on the market generally at a time. So uh, hard to hard. To, I'm still of the opinion that it's typically hard to make a profit on them because you have to find somebody to buy it. Uh, and you know, you're not going to be able to flip a hundred. Well, not Jazam Jazam Dijin, but you know, a hundred Serendip Efreets is going to be really hard to move. Uh, but yeah, people did make money on it, uh, and you know, good job if you did. Yeah, I mean, the, the reserve list, I think, my take on a reserve list is that there are some power players that decided that in, in the absence of excellent opportunities in Standard and Modern, they needed to redirect funds somewhere. And that um, that narrative was pushed in a lot of MTG finance literature, and in particular on, you know, ascendant channels like Rudy's on YouTube, that have worse advice, but much larger audiences, sadly. Um, and, you know, if a guy like that is going to talk about reserve lists, like seven episodes out of 20 or something over the course of many months, that's going to move the needle because the reach is is large enough that people that might not even, that are more into drama than they are into diligent finance are still going to pull the trigger on a couple of things and see how it goes. And there was also, there's also a large portion of the finance community that if they're making fun of us for operating on masterpieces and in Europe, you know, they're obviously doing different things. So we know that, for instance, SIG, Offresser, who work, uh, writes for Quiet Speculation and, and formerly for MTG Price, um, you know, he feels much safer dealing in reserve lists because he likes, uh, he, first of all, he likes old cards. He likes to play um, uh, 93, 94 as a format. And he just sees, you know, he sees what other people see, which is that, you know, a card that definitely can't be reprinted means I can sleep better at night. Um, and even if a lot of these cards that spiked, uh, from the reserve list were relatively spurious in the sense that they have almost no demand, they also had almost no supply. So, you know, all these cards from Arabian Nights and Antiquities that were previously $3 or whatever going to $10 or 20, some of the cards from Legends that actually do see play in, in EDH going from, you know, 10, 20, 30 dollars to 40, 50, 60, 70 dollars, you know, some of those are pretty legit spikes um, on the basis that, you know, they don't have tremendous demand profiles, but they do have the kind of demand that can sell a copy a week or something in, in the internet economy. 
And therefore, if you're holding three or four of them and you got in at 25 and you got to get off the train north of 60, I mean, that's a good place to be too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if it worked out for you, that's excellent. Uh, it's just, they're, they're tougher to work with. Um, and I suppose they're relatively secure. Uh, you know, if you, if you value safety above all else, then they are not, they are probably one of the better choices because you don't have to worry about them showing up again. So you at least have that going for you. And while they can be relatively illiquid, they are at least safe. Yeah. And I mean, people that work on the collector side that put together those sets over the course of the last several years, um, you know, guys like my dad, uh, you know, his wife was laughing at him for buying all these cards he never played with and stashing them away. Now he just looks like a champion. I mean, his his full sets of Antiquities and Arabian Nights and stuff, like when he looks at what a Juzum Jin's call costs now, he's just laughing because, you know, he was picking that up when it was $100. And, you know, filling in gaps, you know, he was making people offers on 20 or 30 or 40 of the cards he was missing and getting them at 20 or 30% off to do kind of a bulk purchase. And all of that has appreciated to such a great degree that I now, you know, I'm embarrassed I didn't go in for the ride with him. <laughs> yeah, that's got to make you feel bad. <laughs> I mean, I, I love to see other people succeed. So it's not like I'm jealous or anything, but it, it, it was an opportunity that I, I, I fo- where I focused on reserve list this year was uh, foils from Urza's Destiny, Destiny and Legacy that I thought were important in EDH because I thought that had a nice, you know, sat at a nice intersection of real demand and a real supply problem where, um, you know, it, they weren't as I, as iconic, um, but were still important cards in a vibrant format. Um, and we also put in some money on some other stuff. Like I, I, I definitely bought up a bunch of Volra stronghold. I bought up a bunch of Yavamaya hollows, Yavamaya hollow foils, Japanese Yavamaya hollow foils that we sourced in Europe, flipped those relatively quickly. Um, and as we talked about earlier, the Gaia's Cradle um, and Gaia's Cradle Judge promos. I also picked up some Japanese Gaia's Cradles overseas at about the same price as the English that I think are going to do really well down the road. That'll be cool. So I, I just checked on Haruyuya, by the way. And the indeed, the Search for Escanta Buy a Box promo does exist, and they're sold out at $100 US a piece. Wow. I, uh, hmm, I have to keep an eye out for those, see if I can dig them up someplace, because that's really interesting. I can't find a single copy for sale anywhere. So I'm going to be putting the shout out on Twitter to see if anybody has one. <laughs> Man, that's got to be exceedingly rare. If I had a teleporter and I could get to uh, like central Tokyo right now in the technology district and go shopping around Akihabara for the afternoon, I can guarantee you we'd be able to pull six or eight of them off the shelf somewhere. Yeah, they're definitely out there. There was all sorts of random stuff on shelves, but they're in stores that do not care to list them online. Mm -hmm. All right. So one of the other, um, you know, big things that happened this year was after years and years of standard kind of being the the pivotal um, portion of MTG finance, uh, it's been in mostly a coma this year. I mean, money has been made on standard cards. There were probably 5, 10, maybe 15 notable spikes during the year as new decks emerged. But as we saw with some of the picks that we made or missed, um, you know, a lot of these decks, time in the spotlight was relatively fleeting and you had a very narrow window where you needed to get in and get out. Um, And cards that in previous standard environments like Torrential Gear Hulk that would have been kind of slam dunks to pick up at their summer lows and then sell into fall hype just never materialized. 
um, because of a combination of, of factors that we've already covered. So, you know, standard finance dead? No, but in a coma, definitely. That is a, yeah, that is a real tough place to put money in and, and realize a profit. The timelines are really short. The spikes aren't as high because inventory is so large. There's a reduced player count. There's just a lot of factors working against standard right now where that used to be so lucrative. You know, it used to be, hey, it's August, time to trade for all of the fall sets lands, rare land cycle, as many as you can possibly find so that in October when they all double, I can flip them back out for cool new cards. Uh, I mean, those days are long gone. So it's at this point, I'm, I'm basically staying away completely until... I see standard change a little bit uh, and you feel free to tell me that I'm dumb if I ever try and recommend you guys a standard card. Cause I just, it's just, it's not a, it's not a winning proposition at this point. I mean, if you're going to focus on anything, it's four of mythics that are, that are in good position. But the thing is that the underlying problem is still um, total interest in standard and format management. That's, that's the underlying problem. So if you don't believe that those factors are fixed, and they, they get fixed by new sets um, shaking up the format fast enough for people to stay interested. And at the same time, the format being uh, a good match of average deck price to interest, um, you know, that's, that is a really tr- tricky equation. And, and as much as we all criticize, you know, where Wizards has ended up over the last couple of years, I'm not sure any of us would have done any better um, in their seat. There, there's, there's a lot to consider there, and it's uh, a very difficult game to balance when you don't have the kind of, um, you know, instant statistical feedback that, for instance, the, the video gaming industry can gather by managing the servers upon which a multiplayer game is played. Um, you know, these guys can look at deck lists and top eights, but it's, you know, much more an art than it is a science. Um, and, you know, we, we have to recognize how difficult that is and let that uh, inform our investing decisions. Yeah, I'm not, uh, you know, trying to give Wizards a hard time. It's very challenging to manage all of this. I'm just thinking that I'm not uh, not eager to be putting money towards standard for the time being. <laughs> At the same time, uh, I am eager to put my money towards EDH, which has been far and away the best avenue for profit for the the average listener this year. Uh, EDH has just been all over the place. It was really showing how capable it is of pushing prices um, from the smaller stuff, you know, 2 to 4 or $5, and also the high-end stuff, you know, tens of dollars or even hundreds of dollars. There's so many players there. So much value gets wrapped up in EDH decks. People don't take it out of their binders. They, you know, they buy it and they sit on it you know, forever, basically, uh, it has really been the driving force behind so many of our picks this year. And, and I don't really see that slowing down either. Again, we don't see standard. There's no hope for standard on the horizon at the moment. So EDH is where we're and you know, modern has, I don't want to say settled, but, um, you know, there's so much less churn there than there used to be. Uh, it's, it's definitely gotten a lot quieter. EDH is the place where you're still seeing major price gains in short periods of time. Yeah. I mean, you covered most of the factors there. I mean, the one of the things that I think is important about EDH in terms of its ascendancy is that it functions both in and without the LGS environment. So you can run it as an FNM, you can run it as a Tuesday night play group um, on site, and it can 
still benefit the store because they can sell singles into that group. Group People that play tend to not settle into a single deck like they do in competitive formats um, because EDH is about variation. And EDH is about matching your deck to the mood at the table. So if you're playing with a bunch of newbie ADHers, you don't want to bring out your broken deck that wins on two, two, tier, on turn two. You want to pull out something a little wackier that you've been, you've been fooling around with that maybe is not as refined and is more fun focused. Um, and the fact that the format has uh, kind of promotes uh, the ownership of a bunch of different decks is, is one of the key factors. One of the other ones is that you can house rules the format relatively easily. So, for instance, we're seeing right now that they are officially experimenting via the EDH committee um, with including unglued, unstable, unhinged cards in the format. And I think that that's going to become a semi-permanent thing, not as something that all playgroups must accept, but that it's a it, it could easily transition into an official house rule that any given table can choose to turn on or turn off. And that that will have some kind of an impact on the format and may dry, you know, encourage wizards to print unstable type sets more frequently. Um, because I think that EDH is about fun. It's not about competition for most EDH players. It's about socialization, you know, socializing with your friends. It's about um, trying new things, seeing funny, wacky, extreme things happen within the shell of the game. And because there's no, you know, ultimate EDH tournament that people are trying to qualify for, um, it really leaves it wide open to play with um, mechanics that are more on the wacky side. And I think we're going to see Wizards skewing product in that direction more frequently moving forward. Yeah, it, it seems to be that there's more demand for fun, wacky, lighthearted, social aspects of magic, especially when you contrast it with other ways that players can be investing essentially their competitive time, whether it's other digital card games that are just built better um, or online gaming in general, which offers prize purses like three times or not three, like 30 times more than what magic can offer. You know, look at what professional league players can make versus professional magic players. Um, You know, between, between the robustness of, of, of competitive environments that reward players more than magic does a lot of players i think are treating it as a fun hobby not a i'm going to grind my way to the pro tour people do of course but it seems like that's becoming less of an appeal for players now that there are so many other avenues for that type of behavior um which is fine by me. I, I mean, and I guess I have no no stake in it either way. Not that my opinion on this matters. <laughs> People don't need my permission to treat it as such. Uh, it's just kind of what I'm in. What I see magic kind of pivoting towards, and, and wizards sort of moving in that direction as well. Yeah, and one of the other things that helps you know make it a valuable uh, playground for speculators is that a lot of the cards that are important and that can be important in the format are not important anywhere else and are highly unlikely to be prioritized as a reprint outside of commander products. And given that, you know, you get a smattering of commander focused cards in pretty much every set these days. Um, and then the main commander release in the fall until we see them double up on that and start say printing commander fall and commander spring or something. Um, you know, it's going to be a pretty robust playground. Um, I suspect we are going to see a shift towards more commander products because I think it's, I think it has a chance at taking over for standard 
as uh, a bigger revenue generator for Wizards. If you refocused Magic as a brand on the non-competitive scene, uh, I I have a feeling that might be a thing um, over the next few years. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. But in the meantime, it's going to make us some good money. Yeah. Yep. Um, let's see. Uh, and our last, <laughs> our last topic for 2017, are we hitting these chronologically here, is uh, cards for crypto. <laughs> James, I think that you and all of our listeners know that I am a magician when it comes to Bitcoin. Because every time I have bought Bitcoin, it has promptly turned down at least 10%, <laughs> like without fail, every time I bought coins, it immediately jumps off of a cliff. So if anyone really wants to uh, to want a buy-in point, they should let me know so that I can buy Bitcoin for you to drive the price down. Fair. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, this concept of cards for crypto is, again, something that probably impacted almost nobody listening. Um, I know of only a handful of listeners that did similar things. Uh, I know Ed over on Cartel was was fooling around with it right around about where I was. Um, but it's notable because I think it's important to not be myopic in if you're involved in, in any form of finance and speculation, whether it's toys or video games or magic cards or stocks or whatever, to ignore your other opportunities. Um, and cryptocurrency has been the, you know, the opportunity of a generation this year. Um, people have become millionaires out of a few thousand dollars that were in early on some of the, the most important coins. And, um, you know, that story is still unfolding. And a year from now, it could be have collapsed to a significant degree, or it could be, you know, even more triumphant. So, you know, us starting to talk about that over the last couple of months has been largely about making sure that people... Um, you know, expand their horizons beyond their immediate interests and pay attention to something that could easily matter. I mean, we, we, we talked a few weeks ago about Nova Blitz, which is a cryptocurrency-based version of a Magic the Gathering type game built on a blockchain model with proof of stake that's run by ex-Wizards employees and, and claims to have advice from Richard Garfield, the creator of Magic. So, you know, on that basis alone, this is something you should you should be paying attention to. Um, to see how that's going to play out and figure out what your position is going to be like down the road. And, you know, from my perspective, personally, it was a big deal for me because at just about the right moment, um, when Bitcoin was at 9,300 or so about a, about a month ago, I traded my coveted unlimited SP plus near mint minus Black Lotus that I had, had picked up at GP New Jersey in the fall of 2014 um, where I traded a bunch of specs into it when it was worth about 3300 into what that particular morning was worth about 4200 worth of Bitcoin. And then Bitcoin spiked up to 19000 or so and then started to retrace in and, in and around fifteen five, I unloaded that Bitcoin and was up, you know, something like two or $3,000 on that transaction. So the, the Black Lotus that I maybe could have gotten high 3000s after fees um, ended up being worth six or seven thousand to me, and then I was able to spin that money out into Litecoin for like a forty percent boost in less than a week, and then back into Ethereum for a similar boost, and then most recently back into Bitcoin at actually a bad moment. Um, so you're not the only one who picks bad exit and entry points. It's pretty hard to time, um, and I'm actually underwater a little bit now. I think some total on the Bitcoin, mm-hmm. uh, not not like not negative from my inputs. I'm actually doing quite well, but 
significantly below where we could have been if we just got off the train at 19,000 and then re-entered and, and added 40% to our stash, right? Yeah. Uh, but most recently, like at Corbin Hostler and I both went in on Ripple um, via one of the overseas exchanges when it was at like 90, 90 cents a Ripple. And as of yesterday, that spiked in at around $2.40. So that's like 100% plus gains in less than a week. <laughs> and I will do it for you, uh, suck it, Sig, <laughs> who was trying to tell you and Corbin that it was a terrible idea and not worth it and blah, blah, blah. And then like the tweets hadn't even cooled off and you guys had like tripled your money. input. Well, I mean, it, it looks like it's an easy double. It's retreated a little today because you know that spike was pretty extreme. Yeah. But even if I get off the, the boat right now, I'm up 100% on that. It made me $1,500. So the you know crypto is not easy. It's not simple. It is largely hype-driven right now. It is completely the Wild West. There's tons of fraud in that industry. All sorts of things are, are going to unfold over the next little while that is going to um, you know act as a drag on um, the ascendancy of those various coins. But if you're not at least looking into it, you're doing yourself a disservice because there's just too much action going on to ignore. And is it risky? Yes. But there, if you understand that it's hype driven, then all you really need to be looking at is, you know, set up a Google alert um, telling you so that you can triangulate the volume of discussion about a particular coin and that's going to play strongly into how the market is going to move. Like one of the tweets that I subscribe to just tells you how many mentions there are about a coin in a given day. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, it's been Bitcoin pretty squarely since the day I subscribed to that. But a few days back, it switched to Ripple. And lo and behold, Ripple spikes. Well, that's what you get in a hype-driven market. If a lot of people write articles about a coin, then it, then it moves. Yeah. Um, and especially if the general tone of those articles is positive. So it, it's a fascinating uh, development in fintech. It's something that, you know, I think everybody should you know, at least be paying a little bit of attention to. And, you know, uh, I, I look forward to potentially trading some of this crypto back into a better Black Lotus in 2018, depending on how things play out. Yeah, it was uh, quite, a, quite a wild December and November for all the crypto stuff. And uh, I think that more so than anything, people are going to hear a lot more about it in 2018 than they did in 2017. Um, but that is probably a good place to end our, I think, well over two hour episode at this point. Episode 100. James, where can our listeners find you? As per usual, you guys can find me on Twitter at MDGCritic, as well as via my weekly articles on MDGPrice.com. And I am Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday over at MTG Price, the Watchtower series, cards to keep an eye out on. And you can find me most Monday nights on the Cartel Aristocrats webcast. Also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTG Price com pro trader service heading into 2018 we've got lots of exciting upgrades planned for the site for just 4.99 a month or 49.99 per year you can get early access to this podcast fantastic articles by the best mtg finance minds in the business and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing magic the gathering 
Um, I should point out that we recently added TCG player pricing to the site. So that's going to help stabilize the day-to-day pricing and also give you some good counterpoints against the uh, MTG price vendor team pricing that's posted on the site. Uh, Nice little upgrade for all of us to use in planning out our specs. Cool. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 100 and the end of 2017. Thank God to put this one in the rear view mirror. Uh, I have enjoyed our conversation today and all year, James, and I will see you next year. And here's to another 100 episodes, Travis. May 2018 treat you well. (laughs) 